I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. Welcome to School of Everything Else. Final Fantasy VI. Sharon is sitting this one out as she is nearing the end of Final Fantasy VII for the first time ever for her. And she and I will most definitely be doing a show on her findings. With me tonight is longtime friend of the show, Maya Suris. Hello there. I actually, my microphone was muted, but I gasped when you said that Sharon was playing Seven for the first time. Oh yeah. That's unbelievable. Wow. And Maya is someone for whom this game holds a very special place in her heart. She's basically been kind of guiding me through it. And and as I said uh, in the uh, notes just as we were starting up, I've been trying for 28 years to play this game. (laughs) And it pretty much took Maya uh, just just shoving me forward through this (laughs) to actually, like, get me out of the... Oh, come on! Like, honestly, it's nowhere near as hard as I made it for myself. And it was easier than Chrono Trigger. Yeah, and you also had some weird technical stuff come up that I honestly didn't really know how to help you with. So that can be discussed later. But, you know, some things were of no fault of your own. It was minor, but ultimately... Okay, let me give you the context, folks. And this is as the pixel remasters of the first six Final Fantasies finally make their way from Steam, Android, and iOS to the Nintendo Switch. I'm going to release this show around about that time so everyone can go, damn, I want to play that right now. I figured that I needed to finally bite the bullet and play to completion the one that so often hits the top spot on not just every other Final Fantasy ranking, the other one being seven. If it's not six, it's seven. Both are praised as two of the greatest JRPGs of all time. I played and finished Final Fantasy seven way back in 1997. And had I had six around, I would have done the same. (laughs) It wasn't for want of trying. You can pretty much copy-paste what I said about Chrono Trigger on that show regarding this one not being released in the UK in 1994. (laughs) The original Final Fantasy I was released on America's NES, but then Square, who took a lot of convincing that Westerners could even enjoy JRPGs, enough to go to the trouble of extensive translation and release, skipped games 2 and 3 and released the more narrative-driven 4. In America, it was called 2. They then skipped 5 and released 6. In America, it was called 3. But at least you got 3 out of 6, and definitely 2 of the very best. In the UK, our first actual, official, numbered release was Final Fantasy VII in 1997. Mm -hmm. That would be why I played it. Yeah, I mean, that... It's such a weird thing that, like, the the different localizations, the different releases were so staggered like that. I mean, not only did they get messed up in the United States, but in Europe, just nothing. Uh, It's 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 partly to do with the translation uh, efforts, Mm -hmm. because... The cartridges could only hold so much in the way of uh, information. And they would, if you release something in Europe, you can't just put it in English. You have to put it in French, German, Spanish, and occasionally some of the other ones as well. 
So in America, it was just, well, English. We'll give it to yep. Ted Woolsey. Ugh. He's a legend. More, more he, on he him later. he worked very, very hard under insane conditions. <laughs> yes, he did. Um, there are, even just with the, the little bit of back and forth that we've done, I was like, you know, as much as I give him a bunch of crap for his translation, mm. there are many, many flaws. I'm sure we'll talk about a lot of well, them. Well, he made you love but, this game. You read his version are, of the game. Yeah, absolutely. But there are some bits of his translation that I actually prefer to some of the later um, oh. translations, even if they're probably technically more accurate right. to the original. Some some of them, I actually prefer his version, so. There are v uh, various uh, hacks you can uh, do and patches you can add, which restore the old script to newer versions of the game. So, uh, you know, if you, if you are really fond of that Final Fantasy 3 version, it's there. Anyway, after 7 followed 8, 9, and around the same time as 10... We in the UK finally got PlayStation 1 releases of 1, 2, 4, 5, and 6. The missing one, Final Fantasy 3, was remade on the DS from the ground up with these really charming polygonal graphics in 2007. That also then got ported to the PSP. But the original 2D version of Final Fantasy 3 didn't even reach these shores until as far forward as 2021 and the Pixel Remaster. This is faintly absurd. It means, as far as I can tell, you've never been able to buy a cartridge version of Final Fantasy III or even a disc version. Now, for perspective, back in the early 2000s, putting a Super Nintendo game into what I owned at the time, which was a PS2, out by that point, yielded up a Pixel style that we hadn't yet grown fondly nostalgic for. While I played Secret of Mana to completion around the same time as you Americans were playing this, that was eight years ago to me at that point. Eight years is a long time in games, specifically the eight years that transitioned from 2D to 3D. See, I now wanted to play Final Fantasy X. There was a demo disc in with Final Fantasy VI. I wanted to play Kingdom Hearts II, Baldur's Gate Dark Alliance, Devil May Cry, Onimusha, Metal Gear Solid 2 and 3, Grand Theft Auto 3, Vice City, San Andreas, Silent Hill 2, and Resident Evil 4. The best of the 16-bit era could not hold my attention back then. Basically, I had to become disillusioned over time with the AAA industry before I could really begin to appreciate the 90s era again. Obviously, uh, COVID and lockdown got a lot of folks back into earlier games purely as a comfort thing, and that's why retro gaming has kind of exploded. And after that, I started to really appreciate the PS2 and PS3 era as well, which had some exceptional solo adventures bereft of marketplaces and microtransactions and enforced multiplayer mode and subscription services and season passes and loot boxes and problematic streaming kids telling you that if you aren't getting angry at your video games you're playing them wrong. So this meant that over the years in its various re-releases just like Chrono Trigger I started Final Fantasy VI about ten times and I never got too far until I made the decision to really properly play it. I remembered when I finally got to it uh, this time that, you know the point on the mountain when you pick up Sabin? Yes. That's as far as I got with the original PS1 disc. And then wow. I think 10 came out and I was like, yeah. I'll, I'll get back to this. And I mm -hmm. never did. That's, uh, and that's, I mean, just for people that haven't played it, that is very, very early in the game. Yeah. Yeah. Super early. <laughs> it's not 
that up. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's, it's, it it's is. It's a couple of hours. <laughs> we did thankfully get Game Boy Advance versions of 1, 2, 4, 5, and 6. Again, not 3. No, there will be no 3. <laughs> what did uh, they have against 3? The actual 3. <laughs> I don't know, just that they, maybe they didn't want to confuse people by going, finally, you can buy Final Fantasy 3. Those Americans would be like, I played it. <laughs> and the last one was the version that I played here, Final Fantasy 6 on GBA, with a couple of very handy patches that fixed the graphics, which were made intentionally more pale for the non-backlit screen of the original GBA. And I also swapped out the super compressed and hissing music for... Uh, the SNES tracks. Basically, the GBA version with its larger text was ideal for me since I now need reading glasses. And I, I got a Switch Lite fairly recently, like we, we as a family got one. And I have been playing Switch games and going, nope, nope, can't read that. Can't read a fucking wow. thing. <laughs> that oh, is designed really? to be oh. read off a TV. Fair enough. It's quite panic inducing because they're trying to convey information to me. And I'm like, am I now past the point where I can get information <laughs> that's small? Oh, no. <laughs> what are we going to do with contracts? Anyway. Uh, boy. Carry a magnifying glass is effectively what I've got to do now with Sherlock Holmes. You've got to have, yeah, you've got to have one of those, like, old-timey, like, little uh, spy glasses that you mm. hold directly up to your eye like a jeweler. Oh, yeah, no, like uh, the thing with the tick, 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 and, like, loads of little different lenses. Mm -hmm. A very uh, a steampunk-style headset. Yeah. Either that or just... end up looking a... like you came straight out of a Terry Gilliam movie. I'm fine with this. So, so yeah, I, I played that on the uh, Odin Lite, although I do remember also buying it on GBA and then not playing it. Oh, my God. <laughs> Maya and... Hi! <laughs> Hello. Maya and Peregrine were there. I don't want to not mention Peregrine, who has been very helpful. Were hmm. there on Discord to help keep me on track and soothe my ranting over old, outdated game design, of which there were surprisingly few tantrums. I'm starting yeah. to get used to quality of life improvements in JRPGs and things, and uh, sometimes it uh, like this is this is one that's classified as easy among JRPG fans. It's it's a slim thirty-hour thing as opposed to you know a lot of the Shin Megami Tensei's. That's funny because I would actually say this is one of the harder ones. Oh yeah, to be honest. And I also want just a special shout out for myself to Peregrine because. They were so helpful when you came across those aforementioned technical mm. difficulties. Like, they knew exactly what to do. I didn't have a freaking clue. So without uh, without their help, um, I, I would have been just as lost as you were. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's the standard thing with me and technical foul-ups. I'm like, it says Shadow should be here, and he ain't here. And everyone else who's been there before and done this scratches their head and goes, yeah. well, he should be there. Yeah, well, well, he should be there. I don't know. I like, know. Throw my, throw my hands up and go, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. <sighs> well, you know, he is a ninja, so it's, sometimes it's difficult to spot him. Anyway. <laughs> Um, but yeah, the, the, the background. You, you kept picking me back up and and, uh, and charging through to stay neck. And yeah, you also started playing it when we started getting close to me actually mm -hmm. nearing the end game. Oh yeah, there was no way after talking about it so mm. much. I was like, I've gotta, I've gotta blow the dust off of the old SNES and <laughs> fire up the the old Final Fantasy machine. So. <laughs> so you played it vintage style. Oh yeah, I've only I've only ever played the SNES version, which um, we're gonna get to that with my experience. But yeah, I and <laughs> talking about technical difficulties, you have no idea how many hoops I had to jump through to get my modern smart TV to find channel three. 
<laughs> I'm not even joking. You couldn't joking. just press like the that... three on the remote? No, that no didn't work. No man can live at that speed. It was, yeah, it was insane. Like, I had to go into the advanced settings of the television to find channel three. It was hilarious, but also, like, I I just, I was, my mind was blown. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. I mean, it's... But it worked. That's that's why it's worth us going into the various versions available, because it would be, like, if you are really into vintage gaming, you probably have a SNES set up already in, in a room with a CRT TV, and you wouldn't play it any other way, but other folks would be like, ah, I kind of want to play in a place of comfort, and I'm not really a fan of poking things on smartphones. Oh, yeah, and I mean, I had to completely usurp the basically the family you know in air quotes family television in order to play it like no one else could use the tv while i was playing that so i can completely understand why people would prefer a handheld version of it yeah yeah i mean that that seems to be both mine and sharon's way forward so mm-hmm. uh, sharon's been yeah. pushing through seven with the switch oled mm-hmm. we finished it a few days ago and it's still fresh in my mind and likely to remain so because i love these characters and i found myself caring greatly about the world and wanting to free the people and protect the land from the clawing iron grip of tyranny. Maya, now is the time to tell us about your experience with this. I mean, how old would you have been in 1994? I didn't play it right at its release. So I'm going to be given, I'm not giving away my age that easily, you son of a bitch. I think I think I played Final Fantasy VII in 1999 because I had like a PC version of it, right. and I went back like it was probably around 97 or 98 that I actually first played Final Fantasy VI for the first time. So I had six and seven almost right on the heels of each other, just because of when I was able to pick both of those games up. It's a hell of a duology. So. Uh, yeah, so, you know, I was, uh, you know, it's going to give away my age a little bit, but I was like late teens <laughs> at that point and, you know, a uh, very cynical, but still definitely a bit of a nerd. And while I may have been drawn more to some of the characters that came up in Final Fantasy VII, I really appreciated Final Fantasy VI even at that time because, like, the characters are still cool, but for the capabilities just in terms of like the the technical aspects the very limited sprite animation and graphics and sound that they had to work with it was really incredible to see just how far they were able to push that technology so even at that time i was very impressed with it and it's kind of just grown with me over the years um i this is something i mentioned in the um the show that i did with kane and rinse now like five years ago but every time i play this game i end up coming away a little bit differently i i latch on to something different about it i interpret a scene a different way and like i'm not even kidding like this last playthrough the same thing happened where like different scenes hit me differently I noticed things that I just hadn't quite caught on to before. I found myself identifying with different characters, you know, like as I've grown older, the game has sort of grown with me. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but... No, it does, absolutely. It's 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 one of those things where it's it's been with me for such a long time that it took... It basically took Undertale to share the number one spot for me, nice. you know, like, and Undertale is very famously inspired by these older JRPGs. Oh, yeah. 
very specifically find uh, yeah exactly i mean like and to the point where there's a almost shot for shot remake parody of the opera scene from final fantasy 6 in undertale ah. so uh, yeah so i, I, mean, I honestly i have to alert willow to that because uh, mm-hmm. we actually did sit down and watch the opera scene and they didn't say this is in undertale oh my god that's a that's really funny to me it's like, i spotted it immediately as soon as it started i mean like oh, i can hear you. them shouting from the other room oh yeah <laughs> i if you listen to the um there's like a it's it's metaton that's the character that recreates the scene and uh, they're metaton in the playing like Celis. yes okay so it's it's metaton playing Celis and throwing the flowers yep there's yep, like yep. flower petals that fall oh, down the so screen chuffed. and if you listen to the the vocal track in that it's the same like weird like we're trying to replicate human operatic voices also like, like oh, that oh, yes. <laughs> they have that in the scene in undertale <laughs> like down to the sound effect it's so amazingly perfectly done and when i saw that when i first played undertale i was dying i was laughing so hard because i spotted that immediately just for me. exactly that's kind of what i felt i was like oh toby fox gets me Anyway. Oh, that gives me warm feelings. Oh, it does. Oh, <laughs> I remember that. That's a thing that I remember. <laughs> oh, oh man. So, so the, the whole point of so this is that I feel like that... I've been missing out all these years, and I, I like, I, I had it right there, and I, instead I played like one of the bad Tomb Raiders or something. Oh. I, you know, no offense to the the early aughts, like the the PS2, PS3 era games. Like there is really, really good stuff in there. Yeah. I just think that, if, if for me, in terms of the the graphics and the style, like I understand that like the the 2D pixels like is a style now, basically. Like it's a it's an actual um, it's an actual aesthetic that can be in more modern yeah. games. It's referred to simply as pixel art, and it usually yes. tends to refer to kind of a, a slightly more polished up version of the Super Nintendo era. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there are some fantastic examples of that. Uh, Shovel Knight immediately springs to mind. Octopath Traveler. Wonderful. Yeah, Octopath Traveler. Amazing. I just started playing the demo for Octopath Traveler 2, and like, man, does it scratch that very specific itch. Oh, well, like there's just a little, of the moon as well. Yeah, a little more uh, bells and whistles, and like you mentioned before, a little bit more of the quality of life mm. enhancements added to them, but they definitely hit that specific, you know, they, 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 they hit that little bit of nostalgia in your brain mm. and make it just a little bit more accessible, a little bit more polished. But even still, I find replaying Final Fantasy VI a lot more accessible and more replayable for that reason, as opposed to trying to go back to the original Final Fantasy VII, which I have done. And it's like, oh, I still love this, but man, it feels like the controls feel clunky. And man, the <laughs> There was only the one early... time when I went in Final Fantasy VI, I went out of the screen upwards and then accidentally pressed up more and then went back to the previous screen. In Final Fantasy VII, it's every other section mm-hmm. that you're doing. That. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. It, it's like... Make up your minds! I just feel it much more replayable in that way. And I think the 2D pixel style it just has aged better in general. 
We will see when it comes to Final Fantasy VII, which will be uh, uh, released, recorded fairly soon after this, and released in fairly swift conjunction. I still, mm-hmm. well, I, I love how much Sharon loves it. Just seeing her get that attached to Eris and and be like me, oh. I don't want to take another step. I mm-hmm. I am only halfway through the remake because after I met her, I was like, any further than this brings me that much closer and brings yeah, her that be- much because, closer. I am yeah. responsible at this if point. You, if you know, you know. And don't get me wrong, Seven is a, a freaking amazing game. Amazing game. I love it so much. Oh, yeah. It's just We don't slightly... even have to, to, to pick which yeah. is better. They're both fantastic. But you're right insofar as Seven is weighed down by some of the early steps in 3D, which, mm-hmm. whereas this is the furthest advances in the 16-bit era. Like, yes. they push the SNES as far as it could go. Yeah, and, and again, it's just a, a personal... Because some people really like their early PS1 uh, graphic style, but for me, I just feel like 6 has aged better with time. It's like uh, the difference between... Huh, um, Lord of the Rings was pushing as fast, far as it possibly could on the practical side of things. Yeah. Whereas Harry Potter, the first two, were a little bit more loose and fun about, hey, let's let's do some rubbery people. <laughs> so yeah, you'll you'll see the uh, the cracks show a little bit more in those two early mm-hmm. ones. Also because the two series don't even compare at that stage anyway. Right. Okay, so <clears throat> we've established your experience with the game. Now. It starts in foreboding fashion with an opening scroll about an ancient war with the Magi, and we meet a trio in mech suits on a lonely, snowy outcrop. And by the way, I've seen that snowy outcrop about 14 times now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Two are nobody foot soldiers named Wedge and Biggs. Uh, One is a brainwashed amnesiac captive named Terror who is being used as a living weapon by the Empire. Soon after that begins an iconic snowy trek towards the mountain mining town of Nash, the mines beneath it, and the magical Esper beast sleeping within those caverns. As we go through, it feels like the best angle uh, is what this game did so well in 1994. Some of these are now staples of the JRPG genre that we take for granted. Some of them were just performed really well using elements better than most of their contemporaries. And I think one of the key aspects is that this is an ensemble piece. They made it very specifically so that everyone could be seeing themselves as the hero of the story. It's about the group rather than the individual, some of whom you can miss along the way. And it's about getting to know what makes them tick and where their wants and needs tie in with the overarching story. And it's not a million miles off of Mass Effect, especially the second Mass Effect, gearing everybody mm-hmm. up for one big final push. You even mentioned, like, oh, this is like his loyalty mission. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And hopefully helping them square away their regrets before the end. And that does come full circle. You do see not so much a payoff, but an end result of all of the side roads you've taken. Only. This one being a true ensemble piece, it doesn't have an obvious definite protagonist holding the group together the way that Commander Shepard does. And even you might perceive Cloud as a Shepard type character in Seven, even though there's many times when Cloud is not really leading the way. 
Because taking a leaf out of this game's construction, Final Fantasy VII did this as well, and we remember these distinct characters on these two amazing games very vividly as a result. And obviously, everyone out there will have their favorite Final Fantasies. I mean, I know one person uh, specific, I think Kevin said that he loved five more than anything else. Five wasn't even released until it came out on the GBA. So like, mm -hmm. that's making up for lost time there. And I'm definitely going to be playing five. And I'm definitely going to be playing four, which I played some of the PSP version mm -hmm. of last night. Four's fantastic. Yeah, I think you could make a solid argument for four mm. also. But let's start with the uh, characters, and we'll, we'll go with Terra to begin with. Um, and that was the name that, Maya, you gave to one of your dogs. Yeah, yeah. So my, my dog, Terra, that we've had now, for, she's almost four at this point, and not many people make this connection, but that is who she's named after. She's named after Terra Branford from Final Fantasy VI because this is one of my... But as I keep saying, one of my favorite games, it shares that number one spot with Undertale. Mm. And I I just have always, I, I love that name. I had always wanted to give that name to someone. Figured I'd get, <laughs> you're named after Final Fantasy VI character. Um. Well, I mean, like, if, if you, if there was a kid named Terror, it would be quite, I mean, like, your That'd name is Terror. Weird. That's, you're going to show yeah. up on lists. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> not great. Fine. That's not great. But, but a dog, yeah, give him a video game character name. That's fine. What's the other and dog called? Bubba. But here's the thing Bubba. is that my, Bubba's nickname for me is Mr. Bubbles. <laughs> <laughs> and I often call him. I often call him the Big Daddy. Because yeah, the Big he, Daddy. Yeah, he acts like a Big Daddy. <laughs> he is. He's the sweetheart. Nice. Anyways, uh, um, I didn't realize, by the way, until I really sat and looked at some Terra artwork. Oh my god! I must have internalized something about Terra's costume, something about Terra as a character. Because the character of Star Dancer in New Century, this will mean nothing to mm. people who haven't been listening to Panther Soul, is dressed in similar fashion and is captive in similar fashion. Ah, and has yeah. that same kind of level of, of fragility and wanting to be their own person. Mm. There's definitely a parallel with the, the journey for self-discovery. Yeah. And the journey for self-actualization, because Terra starts out basically as a, as a slave, as a tool for the empire, this evil empire. Um, get ready for the Star Wars references in this show because oh, there's a lot of them, starting with Biggs and Wedge. But we've got an evil empire. We've got a stand-in for Emperor Palpatine with Castal. We've got the, the more evil henchmen with, uh, you know, Kefka basically being this goofy version of Darth Vader. There's a lot of parallels between this and Star Wars, and it, it starts right at the beginning. But she's essentially a tool for the Empire, and her whole arc in this story is her journey towards finding out who she really is and solidifying her identity and finding out, like, what can I do as a person and not as an arm of this tyrannical state that has taken over the world. Uh, thinking about it, how, while I was playing it, I was like, there are so many parallels here with Seven as well. It, it feels like they took Celeste and Terra and sort of siphoned them together to make Cloud an ex-soldier who mm. actually had his... De uh, de I forget. Did it's? I, I will know by the time we do the Seven thing. But uh, Sure. <laughs> 
Were the uh, the soldier applicants injected with Genova cells or something? There were a lot of super something, soldiers. Yeah, there's there's a there's a heavy implication that there's. Uh, what is essentially genetic splicing going on? Like everybody has had their DNA kind of messed with yeah. in in that whole time. But you're not wrong in that you could look at the like the Shinra Corporation as basically a modern version yeah, of this yeah. more medieval style empire. And we will talk about him at length later on. But I uh, saw a like I, I didn't really know that much about Kefka because you don't see him that much in the earlier part of the game. It was which is the best Final Fantasy villain. Kefka or Sephiroth and I was like by the time I got to the end I was like they're really similar just in terms they're of very their similar yeah and I think like that's a, a good a point to start with with like what is this game trying to do that like maybe previous games had tried to do before and like as much as I I really enjoy Final Fantasy 4 but the villain in that game falls very short for me oh and I think that this this idea that we're not going to have this, like, monster, it's not going to be something that, like, was drudged up from the fiery depths of hell. It's not, uh, uh, like, in Chrono Trigger, you know, the, the kind of Lovecraftian uh, creature that yeah, is yeah. trying to take... It's a person. The villain is just a person, and they do that with six and with seven, is that this is just a man. They may be a highly, you know, uh, enhanced by magic or, or DNA splicing or otherwise, but it is just a man. And the fact that the the main source of evil comes from the very humanity that we're trying to save, to me, is a much more intriguing way to take your villain character. Mm. Yeah, uh, Kefka, we can talk about it now, actually, because he kind of, like, what you're up against begins as the Empire who want control, but it eventually winds up being Kefka, the, their Darth Vader-type character, going absolutely ballistic and deciding that the world is too dumb to live. <laughs> he despises people. And uh, I, I watched a couple of uh, analyses of his uh, character and a lot of guys who were kind of uh, commiserating with him and considering him a tragic and pitiable figure, a wretch, uh, who had been... He was uh, like, like patient zero for the let's create magic super soldiers. Again, much like the yes. Only yeah, space magic super soldiers there. Mm -hmm. And his mind snapped and he is a clown and there are straightforward, easy comparisons with the Joker to be made there. And he, uh, especially by the end of the game, comes on full nihilist and talks about what is the point of building things when you know they're going to be destroyed? What is the point of living when you know you're going to die? What is the point of existence when there's non-existence to wait for? It's, mm -hmm. uh, he's Jobu Tupaki. Yeah, yeah, he is. Um, and I think the comparison to Joe, I mean, obviously, because he has the appearance of a clown, it's very easy to see him as a Joker type. But that really is the, the character type that he's aping off of. This also came out not that long after Batman the Animated Series was mm. a thing. So I could not, you, you know, it's it's hard not to see 
maybe there's an influence there. Like, it's it's not a huge leap to take to say, like, well, maybe they were watching the Batman animated series and saw Mark Hamill's version of the Joker and said, we can do something with that, too. It's all one big, colossal, cosmic gag. Why can't you see the funny side in things? Why aren't you laughing? <laughs> like, I, you could almost hear him saying that but i i think that the Ooh, the if i mean you know if they were gonna do an animated version or, or have it voiced as a well, for the remake and mark hamill was there would, would we all be that upset i would not be upset at all i'd be like yeah i'm on board yeah get more camelas i mean he just does such a good villain anyway my right there. suggestion in terms of direction would be that uh, make it that the clown is very much the mask and that by the end he is he's almost engaged in a cry for help. He could have brought about absolute destruction at any point, but he waits for the returners, that's the, uh, uh, the avalanche of uh, Final Fantasy VI, mm -hmm. to all turn up so that he can gloat at them for their beliefs and believing in, in rebuilding. It's almost like he's testing them to say, give me a reason not to do this. Yeah. And it's, it's you know, that classic, like, I'm going to fill you with doubt right before the end. Mm. Because and misery loves company. Yeah, just that last ditch effort. Maybe you'll give up. Maybe you'll just throw in the towel and join me. I mean, specifically, Jerbo Tupaki was looking for Evelyn. Yes. To debate this. Joe Butabaki could have just bageled the hell out of the entire multiverse. <laughs> but she wanted to talk about it. Uh-huh. And then and it, 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 these are people who are broken and sad. And yeah. absolutely need to be taken down like Azula. But it, it's... It's, un it's kind of understandable that, uh, as with Sephiroth, there's a, a, a certain amount of abuse that someone can take but that you could s sort of excuse away their terrible actions, but then you turn it around and look at Cloud and look at uh, Terra and look at, uh, in, in the case Celeste. of Celeste who, uh, Celeste, who effectively worked for the Empire to the point where she became sickened with herself, much like, um, what's his name from 4? Cedric? Uh uh, Cecil or Cain? Yeah. I guess like both of them, really. C yeah, much like Cecil in Four, there's that uh, that that sense of uh, of self disgust and wanting to make amends for it. Uh, so you can look at the the hero is the person who is able to make that leap and decide to change their life around. The villain is the person who is not strong enough to make that leap. Yeah, and in Kefka's case, kind of finds it all funny. Hmm. Like, it's amusing to him that all this suffering is happening. Yeah, well, he's he's entirely detached from humanity, mm -hmm. which is why his his opposites, his nemesi, are people who have connected with various small, intimate versions of humanity. It's never really giant crowd scenes and loads of people cheering on one person. It's always small, personal tales that keep them going. This is a game for introverts. I would not disagree with that. <laughs> okay, uh, another one of our um, heroes, they all are, uh, we've got Locke, who is kind of a, a, a thief and a brigand and uh, kind of cheery with it. Mm. Doesn't like very, screwing people over, very much a Robin Hood type uh, guy. A very Bry Byronian-esque mm. uh, archetype. I can hear his music, well, the music will be playing right now. I can hear this mm. in my head. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's, a, it's a great theme. Yeah. 
And uh, he kind of... It's always neat to be able to get a thief who has a moral backbone that other people who've done bad things can sort of rally around, because ultimately he's not particularly powerful. He's, he's not coming at uh, the world with any sense of, of duty. He's somebody on the low, low end of the ladder who's decided to still do something. Yeah, I think they make up for, you know, in terms of like his utility as a, a playable character, they more than make up for it with cramming his character with tons of, of just emotional weight and a beautiful arc. Yeah. Um, and I, I think I think there's a good reason why this is a favorite among a lot of Final Fantasy VI fans. Like, yes, it's very easy to kind of latch on to the thief with the heart of gold because that's essentially what he is. But the things that he goes through and where like where he ends up in the story compared to where he started is it's it's really incredible. And again, like we can't just go with superlatives the, here. We have to say why. I know. Yeah. Like his okay, backstory so is we, that uh, a woman that he cared about became critically injured, ends up dying as a result of his actions and so his decision making throughout the game seems to be informed upon by I don't want this to happen again under my watch mm -hmm. so specifically I mean it <laughs> this is kind of Locke's fault too I mean it, it really is like he's carrying around a lot of guilt about this he's the one who decided to bring his lady friend and uh, you know presumably a romantic interest into a cave without proper spelunking gear. You idiot! Like, why did you do that? So, of course, she has this horrible accident. She first develops amnesia, which, again, is like, uh, in JRPGs, amnesia is just, everybody is losing their memories, including this lady. Uh, her name is Rachel. Rachel loses her memories. She starts getting upset because she doesn't remember who Locke is, but he keeps turning up and insisting that they have a past. And she's like, I don't remember this past. Leave me alone. You're upsetting me. You're upsetting my family. Please just leave. Locke takes it upon himself to actually honor her wishes and he leaves. Then the Empire attacks her village, like the village where she lives. She is on the basically on death's doorstep. The last thing that she says is Locke's name. And then he gets his uh, herbalist friend, apparently, to put her into a state of suspended animation. So now she's just being housed in this in this place where she just does not she doesn't age. She can't die, but she's also not living. It's a hell of a lot of good herbs. Yeah. I had to use my herbs. I did. <laughs> <laughs> I freaking love that guy. Anyway. Um, yeah. So it's it's this like. It's understandable that he would carry around this guilt, but at the same time, like, when you show up at this house and you have Locke with you and he explains why he did this, it's a bit like, oh, man, why, guy, like, my guy, why did you do this? Like, it's it's very strange, but it does have a very satisfying conclusion to it, I think. So a lot of this theme with, with Locke is just like, letting go of his guilt over the things that he has done and allowing the people in his life to to pass if it has just come to their time to pass. Yeah. 
We can talk about um, Celeste here. She's the, uh, pers- the the warrior who was working for the Empire and decides she doesn't want to anymore. She's, for a start, it was a, a really strange design choice in some versions of this game, specifically promotional art, to give Terra blonde hair. She has green hair that keeps her very separate from Celeste, who wears green. Uh, <laughs> like in the PlayStation One cutscenes, which I sent you, there's scenes where it mm. swaps back and forth between Celeste and yeah. Terra. I can't tell which is which. It has to yeah, be I've... contextual. Oh, that one's in the mech armor. Actually, that's not just a background. Yeah, I've seen that before, and I completely agree with you. Like one of the most iconic things about Terra is her unnatural, like sea green hair yeah. and the reason for that is because she as we find out later in the story she's half esper bit, yeah yeah she's she is a, yeah tara's a half human half esper which definitely becomes a, a plot point later on but like that's one of the reasons why she's the only one with this weird unnaturally colored hair is because of that and celeste is like to me when i picture her she's like that almost like a, a scandinavian look very pale platinum blonde hair, blue eyes. She wears white and pale blue in her costume. Like, that's kind of what kind of like I... the Marvel version of Valkyrie until Tessa Thompson. Kind of, yeah, yeah. Uh, and her centerpiece. I mean, there's... I had my heart in my mouth at uh, several points in this game because I was like, oh, no, mm. please, please. No, 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 no. It, it, <laughs> it seemed like she was so consumed by guilt that she was in a Hamlet-style situation. I won't... Like uh, she's standing on a clifftop, which parallels the opera. The opera mm-hmm. is the centerpiece of the game, and it's her emotional, not even really, not even really climax. It's that and the clifftop, those two together. It's a, it's a call and response, a question and an answer. Yeah. The, uh, it turns out through strange means that uh, a woman who looks almost exactly like her, uh, is a, who is an opera singer, is going to be snatched away. By a sky pirate, uh, your favorite, mm. <laughs> whose, mm. whose name is Setsa. And uh, he's going to take her away on his airship so because they're in love and he wants to have her, but her husband won't let her go and she's being jealously kept. We never do get to meet this other... Do, do we ever get to meet this other woman? No, we oh. never meet... Um, Maria is the name of the actual opera singer and right. no, she's she's depicted in like So the character and- in the opera is also called Maria. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. She, yes. It's oh, it's all too trifling yeah. and confused. But, but anyway. Yeah, so, so Celeste finds out about this while they're, they're sort of hatching the plan on the spot, and I, I love the way that her her sprite kind of reacts to kind of a whoa, whoa, whoa. What are you saying? I'm supposed to be doing here? Like I, I'm supposed to stand in and, and sing opera? I can't sing opera. And then she barrels up into the dressing room and starts going me 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 la 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 and just you just read that in text boxes, and Locke <laughs> is you know glad that she's immediately on board with this, but so effectively she's there tr- playing at being an opera singer, but that the, the mm-hmm. opera happens to be her theme and it just happens to parallel how she feels in certain ways about herself and a growing feeling about Locke as well. Mm -hmm. This is one of those instances where replaying it, I had, it just kind of hit me like a ton of bricks and I don't know why I didn't really make this connection before, but this is also one of the points at which 
as opposed to like you sent me the pixel remaster of the opera scene i think and mm. i was like oh this looks really pretty but there's there's the second verse of the part that celeste has of her solo mm. that i think ted woolsey's version actually does a little bit better for all of his flaws i prefer his reading of this scene because there's a very specific set of lines where celeste is talking about how she is going to she's basically a stuck marrying a man that she doesn't even really like in in this opera she's uh marrying this guy named prince ralse and her actual true love is this man named draco and he's like our our hero of the opera but he gets defeated by a different warring faction Maria gets kind of swept up in the other side and is now betrothed to a man that she doesn't even like, let alone love. So she's talking about how she's basically devoting herself to Draco. She wants to hear his voice again. She wants to see him one more time. And while she is waiting for him, basically, she mentions that she's not going to age a day. She's going to be young forever. And she is all forever going to be waiting for him. Now, this is never like explicitly stated in the game and Locke doesn't have like a direct reaction to it, but I can't help but think Locke is standing over in like the wings of the theater mm. listening to this. There's no way he can't see that as a, a direct parallel to what is going on with him and Rachel. Rachel's in suspended animation. She can't age at all. Mm. And like he was the cause of that. Like, she's not going to get any older. She's stuck in this position forever and forever waiting for him. Yeah. Like, oh, that... To the point where he me. has to be set free by her. Yes. Yeah, and it's it, that, that part really hit me hard this time around because I'm like, man, Locke is just, like, 10 feet away from Celeste right now. This is a very emotional moment for her as well because she's kind of... Uh, rediscovering a part of herself and these emotions that she's kind of cut off from. She's kind of cut herself off from for such a long time. She's developing these romantic feelings for Locke. It seems like he's sharing in those romantic feelings for Celeste, but there's this divide and Locke has to be thinking like, oh my god, I, I did this to Rachel. I did this to my former fiancé. She can't age, and she is has no choice but to wait for me forever mm. because of my actions. Which makes him feel guilty about his burgeoning feelings for Celeste. Even more, even more, yeah. It just like the emotional weight of this whole opera scene, like, and uh, you know, aside from the fact that it is beautifully shot, beautifully scored, all of the technical elements are there, but then all of that emotion and all of those big important character moments are going on simultaneously uh, it's 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 breathtaking it's it's such an amazing achievement for the era it's absolutely standout the, the fact that if, if it's not you're not just passively watching it what ends up happening is a nothing nobody boss named ultros <laughs> who is a big purple octopus uh, that you fight when you're uh, white water rafting down river, comes back and decides to basically play Phantom of the Opera. Like he leaves, uh, yes. <laughs> he leaves a letter to say, "I am going to interfere with this opera," but everyone wanders off, and so he's like, 
Anyone gonna pick up that letter? Oh, oh, look, there's a letter over there. Like he is so much fun. This 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 nobody boss. Yeah. And then he and decides to of... to push a sandbag from the rafters onto Celeste's head. Uh, when he's like, oh, it's gonna take me about five minutes, which starts a five minute timer for uh, <laughs> nudge, Locke to nudge, rush wink, around wink. to uh, to rush around and take him on. And. You know, it's it's a it's a race against time, so that you are very much engaged in what's going on in the opera, and there's, you're kind of juggling because, as Celeste, you have to read the words to the opera and then remember what each line is next, mm-hmm. and then select them from a list. I ended up having to photograph that because I am terrible with memorizing things. You feel the pressure. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, like you really do. You feel the pressure of that scene of like, I can't mess this up because if I do, then this whole mission has failed. And she's got to hit we a are- mark and dance and all of that yeah stuff. you have to remember the blocking you have to remember your cues you have to remember like like it's it's not an it, like it's a relatively easy gameplay wise mechanic part of the game but internally you're like oh my god don't mess this up don't mess this up don't mess this up like you are actually on stage with that uh it's a really nice way to kind of break up the traditional combat and to give the player a little bit more of an interactive feel have you ever played any of the Shantae series? No. Okay. There is an octopus in that who starts out as a basic boss and then comes back and then ends up kind of with a crisis of conscience about himself and uh, and kind of mm. feels like he's all over the place, much like Altros. That is most definitely, I'm, I now realize... I'm nothing but a stupid octopus. Yes. And uh, yeah, he, he ends up um, uh, like finding like metal armor, and he's like, "Finally, I can come back and present you with a decent challenge." Okay, let us fight. Mm. And it's and, and Shantae being a soft-hearted genie, he's like, "Yeah, you you don't do it. Yeah, you can be a great boss." And let's fight. And I oh, that that uh, third one, um, Pirate's Curse, is wonderful as far as games mm. go. I truly recommend that. I've played all the others and I've only completed Pirate's Curse so far. I absolutely intend to complete all the rest. Shantae is a fantastic series. Anyway, mm. so um, what eventually, you have to fight rats when you go across the rafters and you, you eventually <laughs> uh, uh, do uh, and end up doing battle with Ultros on stage, but it's one of those Moulin Rouge style, like you fall from the rafters and the audience thinks it's all part of the, 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 the play and it everyone's loving it and it's Again, it's, it's it's a truly memorable piece of 16-bit gaming. Mm. But just to back up a little bit, back to the uh, the girl with amnesia, it made me think of a couple of other times when that happens in games without speech and with very basic, simplistic, uh, representational figures for characters rather than anything even approaching realistic. Most NPCs, when you talk to them, will obligingly tell you the little snippet of information that they have. And you can just go, okay, cool, thanks. And then, you know, your mum comes in and tells you you got to go to the festival, da-da-da. Yeah, oh, see you note. at the festival. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get people to actually write in on this one because uh, I, I want to know if there are any others. Uh, there are, I cited yesterday, four different ways for JRPGs to begin. One, the sleeping hero gets woken up by a girl and told he has to go to the place for the festival or test. Two, there's trouble at the palace and the reigning monarch needs your help. I played a game yesterday where both of these happen. It was Final Fantasy, (laughs) the four heroes of light on the DS. 
Three, we hit the ground running in media res. A big fight is going on and we get an idea of combat, characters, and conflict. That's probably the closest to what how Final Fantasy VI begins. Yeah. And seven. And yeah. And and four, a Japanese high school like any other. But oh wait, is that a door to another realm with demons? Folks, tell us <laughs> ways five, six, and seven that JRPGs could start. Okay. I feel like those those are the major ones because I mean even just thinking about like yeah most of the uh, most of the Corona Trail like Earthbound starts out with you your nest in bed and somebody wakes you up as like hey nest starts you say to start somebody your is it a girl it's I think probably it is. mom it's his, I think mom it's, or sister it's either mom or the sister I can't remember off the top of my head but yeah it's the same way uh, Persona Five how did this app end up on my phone that's weird. Hey, this doesn't look like the school. Oh, look, a magical doorway into another dimension. You know, like, it's everywhere. Yeah. It's, uh, they're, they're, they're old faithfuls. Though. It's a good way of going, it's going to be this kind of RPG, so you can sort of settle into it. In, in the West, mm-hmm. oh my god, you're in prison. How are you, are you going to get out? you got no items. And, uh, oh, someone lets you out, so what are you going to do now? Oh, okay. boy. <laughs> so... Cyan. Yeah, this is a samurai kind of guy, and I read a lot of guides to get through this one, and so many of them complained about Cyan. And I'm like, you know what? His musical theme makes it worthwhile. Like, I love <laughs> his theme. Yeah, I really do. Like, his theme is actually, like, and I'm one of those people, too, where, like, I don't really like Cyan in combat, mm-hmm. but he's an incredibly well-written character, oh, and yeah. his music is amazing. It's beautiful. Oh, hang on. I never actually... I never got to the end of my thought. Okay. Oh. This actually does apply to uh, Cyan, because when you find Cyan... Oh, his thing is so complicated. Um, he's There's mourning, a lot. There's a lot going on with Cyan. <laughs> he's mourning his wife and uh, child who were killed by uh, the Empire. By at, Kefka, by specifically. Kefka. And there's a really heartbreaking bit where they, they leave on this train of ghosts, and he kind of wants Ugh. to follow them and uh, then there's a woman who's writing to a soldier and the soldier is indisposed and can't write back and eventually uh, Cyan starts writing to the woman in pretense just to give her a feeling like she's not going to lose that person for a bit mm-hmm. longer when you finally find him he's he's very well aware he's got to stop this his whole uh, mountain home is filled with plastic flowers from this girl's shop <laughs> and uh, then when you uh, look into his uh, uh, chest he's got like the dummy's guide to machinery and things and he doesn't uh-huh. he, he, he runs in and his sprite gets incredibly flustered and embarrassed mm. and again they're so expressive when they have these big exp- uh, big sort of oh no moments and I love yeah, how um... fast they whip around the screen when they need to illustrate uh, internal frenetic uh, energy. You know, he's he's trying to hide all of the flowers yeah, and stuff like, and and I, that's kind of one of those those things that I I still find so impressive about this game is that the little character animations that they do, Lord, they convey so much with just a wink or somebody lowering their head. I mean, you get so much out of Cyan just from mm. the the train scene that you were describing when it starts to pull away and he just runs after it. Yeah. Doesn't say anything. He just runs to the end of the platform and watches as his wife and son kind of fade away with the train and he just hangs his head down and all you hear is just like the lone uh, whistle blow of the train as it fades 
out of you and and out of uh, it's so haunting and so effective um there's uh, yeah, I just cannot overstate like how much emotion and how much they're able to uh, to convey in in a very a lot of times a very cinematic way mm. with such a limited palette to work with. It's very clear that this was done by a small team who were very well coordinated because just to do to perform all of the work for that scene you just described required mm-hmm. the graphical artists to be able to talk with the writers to be able to talk with the sound designers to be able to talk with Nobu Uematsu making the mm-hmm. Super Nintendo sing and it just they it really feels like it was a well-oiled machine that they actually were developing things as they went along almost like a writer's room hey what if this happened and just sort of like enriching it as it went through it, it's a real work of passion and and marking the end of the Nintendo era because after this it went Sony 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 for a yeah. long time uh and uh, it, it took the DS games to sort of bring it. Oh, no, actually, sorry, the GBA games and the DS games to sort of bring new uh, Square games out on that. But, like, in terms of, of, of score, this is up there with Chrono Trigger and Secret of Mana in terms of, of being able to produce a soundtrack on the Super Nintendo that you could listen to now. And we, uh, I, I got into not exactly a fight with Peregrine, but in a, in a kind of, I was, I, I was expressing <laughs> how much I love the reorchestrated versions of these, and, and Peregrine was like, "But don't you see how much this, like, they pushed the Super Nintendo sound chips, and like, just because it's more yes, complex doesn't make it better." And I'm like, "I agree. I love them both." <laughs> Yeah, this exactly. isn't a fight, but, please. But no, and it's and it's kind of I think it's indicative of like how well these pieces of music were orchestrated. Like this is like this is a John Williams esque score. It really is. Oh, yeah. Like it's it's basically like they they treated it almost as if this were a very long movie mm. and they were scoring a film. And the scale of it is on the scale of something like a John Williams score. Where he gives specific characters themes in yes, the same way and, that Howard Shaw does. And, uh, and, I, th- and I think it's like, it's it's just a testament to how well that all has fit together and like the care that was put into it, that you can listen to it on its own in its original format. And, and you can hear what's going on there. You can hear where it's meant to be orchestral. It's meant to have a rock opera sound to it in certain cases, or it's supposed to have a full choir. Mm. And then you go to something like, uh, I mentioned the Distant Worlds um, soundtrack because I think they do some really good arrangements of Final Fantasy music, especially six. And it works perfectly. Like it just lines up perfectly. You know exactly what Umatsu was doing with the chiptunes version, and it directly translates into, all right, this is the the brass section, this is the strings, this is where we throw in a, a pipe organ, this is where we have a full choir, like, it just works so well. And it's just, it's just a testament to how, to, to how fantastically that, that original score was, was composed. Can I mention one more thing about Cyan, actually, before we get off of him? Absolutely. This was just a, a funny bit that I, I, <laughs> I had to look this up, but in the little chest, when you meet up with him again, he's got the little chest and it's like uh, uh, the machinery for dummies. And then you hold up another book that says Book of Secrets. <laughs> in the Japanese, in the Japanese version, it's 
just porn. It's a dirty magazine. Ah. <laughs> However, in the end sequence, in the end sequence, he has to push a button, and he's like, "Oh God, I can't because I can't do machinery." And it's like, "Just push the button, man!" Oh, oh, oh. and the amount of gearing himself up to push this button he does is so sweet. Oh, it's great. Yeah, they even put it like there's a a great cap to like he has gotten over his guilt and his his uh, despair over the loss of his family and the loss of his kingdom, too, really. Um, but there's also like a little button on the end of he's gotten over his fear of machines. <laughs> Huzzah! Like, it's, it's so great. It's also kind of appropriate that he he's a samurai that f- fears machines when ultimately the the era, the Edo era, was uh, outmoded by firearms, by mm-hmm. me- uh, mechanical ways of dispatching troops, I- you know, in swift fashion with rifles and explosives with a- and aquabus yeah. without that... The, 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 the honor code and everything to do with being a samurai. So uh, it's... It makes sense for him to actually be, for that to be outside of his wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. I still haven't finished this thought. I'm gonna get to it now. Okay. The uh, young woman with amnesia, Rachel, that uh, uh, can't recognize uh, Locke. When you meet NPCs, they speak to you, they give you the little bit of information. In some games where they're trying to convey drama and you meet someone who should respond to you like a friend or family member and greet you and then says, I don't know who you are or is angry with you. And it's barely really expressed on their face. They're kind of blank. That gets used repeatedly in a game that definitely takes uh, an aesthetic leaf out of this particular book to the moon. And whenever something like this happens in a game, it's heartbreaking and you're watching it very much from an abstract perspective where it's just a little bit of pixels has just broken the life of your little bit of pixels by not being able to connect with them. And it's really effectively used when, Mm. like for the bits that, in the instances that stick in my head, those are moments of, of, of tragedy that are very well communicated through the most sparing of pixel art. And this whole game is full of sadness and, and tragedy. It's, it's, it blends it with comedy, sometimes in a mismatched fashion. I was playing Four yesterday, and I finally got to that classic, you spoony bard line. Oh yeah, classic. Like, That's brilliant, and I was laughing my ass off. And then it was apparent that uh, the girl who loved the bard uh, as a, uh, a partner and loved the father who said, you spoony bard, who disapproves of her spouse, uh, is dying. And I immediately pivoted to sadness. But strangely, because I'd just been laughing, it didn't feel oddly mismatched. Maybe it was... Maybe it's because it's not spoken. You know, the the, yeah. the music can switch on a dime and actually bring you to a different place in a way that uh, actors trying their best would have real difficulty managing the sudden swerve between tragedy and comedy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's a, a good bit of absurdity that happens mm. in Final Fantasy VI, but I, I, 
I, I almost feel like in a game like this, you need that just because of all of the stuff that happens that is so tragic and like the the scale of just just the totality of everything that happens. Like you almost need those lighthearted, almost absurd moments. I think it goes without saying that if you like uh, this, you'll like the Princess Thieves. If you like the Princess Thieves, you'll like this. That's mm-hmm. my my reasoning for uh, making it fun was because I knew that when it got really, really sad, then we'd care that much more because we've laughed with and at these characters for, mm-hmm. for so long. And next one's on the list. We've got Edgar and Sabin that we can uh, cover together. Edgar is the uh, grown-up prince who uh, I believe used a trick coin in order to settle a decision between the two of them as to who was going to rule the kingdom. And his brother, Sabin, is the muscle boy bodybuilder who has karate (laughs) power and really just kind of wants to to work on his Fist of the North Star routines. And it kind of reminds me of Corin and Kor from... A horse and his boy. There's a fucking mm. obscure reference, but yeah, there's one who doesn't really want to be king, and another who kind of sits with responsibility better. Yeah, that tension between them and like who's actually going to take over the kingdom is. I, I mean, you you feel it between them and Sabin's grief when their father passes and like. You can really identify with the fact that he he gets really angry, actually, because everybody is like, who's going to take the king's place? Who's going to take over? And he's like, my dad just died. Like, can we talk about that for two seconds before you jump straight into who's going to replace him? Like, mm-hmm. give me a chance to grieve. Yeah. And I, I think that a lot of that is kind of a culmination of things that he's been feeling for a while, but that was sort of the tipping point for him where he was like, I can't do this. I don't want anything to do with that mindset. And I'm just going to go off and find my freedom. Basically. Uh, They also, they occupy a castle that goes underground and travels around the place. I love that concept. That's a whole game in itself right there. Yeah, the traveling castle. (laughs) Yeah. You could make a whole movie about a moving castle. Oh my God. Somebody should do that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But uh, but yeah, uh, Sabin has a strange game mechanic wherein... Well, it's not that strange, but like in, in terms of Final <laughs> Fantasy, they were really trying to go, like, let's... Rather than doing the job system, which had been prevalent throughout 3 and 5 in particular, I think it's mm-hmm. it's also the, yeah. like 1 and 2, 3 and 5 definitely five. have job systems. 4 and 6 are very much more, this person has a class and they are, like, they, they are keyed towards this particular fighting style, as far as I can tell, mm-hmm. um, with 4, because I've only played some of it. Yeah, I think that's accurate because, I mean, like, you have your, your bard who, he's a bard, he does music. You have your white mage, they do healing. Like, that's, it's not, it's it's a version of the job class without stating it outright. Yeah, uh, whereas with Final Fantasy VIII, which we aren't doing a show on, uh, I played what? through so much of that game not realizing that, like, I was underpowered because you're not actually supposed to fight the enemies you're supposed to suck spells out of them over and over and over and over again until you have 99 fires 99 firers and then you junction that with your esper by another name what were they called 
Eidolons? In eight, I don't remember what they were called specifically, but it's a, it's the same concept. It's your summons, yeah, basically. Yeah, your, your summons. And, um, and yeah. if you've got 99 fire, that will you'll have an affinity for fire, and it will make you that much more powerful. But if you use one fire spell, you become slightly weaker. So it's risk v reward. But the fire spells aren't anywhere near as good as just hitting someone with a uh, your your stick that you've tied fire to. In, mm-hmm. in other words, you are de-incentivized from using magic, and you spend most of the time sucking. It's Trying ridiculous. to get it, yeah. It's it's a very strange combat system. I like the fact that, and we, you know, this is kind of tying into the combat of Final Fantasy VI as well, but I think Sabin's actually a good uh, character to lead into that. Yeah, yeah. Somebody like Sabin is, you know, like you said, he's this kind of jock character. He basically looks like a Street Fighter character. Exactly. I mean, this, his whole moveset is based around Street Fighter uh, D-pad moves. So, yeah. like, when it, when you say, I would like to blitz, because why would I do anything else for Sabin? And you've exactly. got to press, like, back, forward, back, and then hit the button. And if you do it right, it says, well done. And if you do it wrong, he takes a step forward and goes... <gasps> No, uh, I can't. I and don't understand what you're trying to tell me to do. That's what the risk reward is. And I, oh, he drove me mm-hmm. nuts for a while until I started to just really just get the the, the sweep of the 360 mm-hmm. degree one. The like, you, you showed me how to find his best move, and I used that for the rest of the game. Oh my god! On it's, later it's versions of this, it actually shows you what buttons to press and tells you if you did it right before you initiate it. Is that oh. not going to make him super overpowered? Possibly, because I think one of the randomness actually plays a big part in a lot of the combat mm. techniques in this game. But yeah, I think that's one of the one of the nice bits about it is like, unfortunately, there's nothing you can do about uh, certain characters whose uh, skills are kind of rigged against them or bugged against them. Looking at you, Setzer and Realm specifically. But with somebody like Sabin, like you are expected to have a more active role in his moveset. And it's like, it's on you, really, whether it works or not. So I actually like that aspect of it. And I also like the fact that Yes, the uh, in your version, I think it's called the Phantom Rush is is his final or something like that. The one where the he goes F- round and round punching the yes. person. In the in the SNES version, it's called the Bum Rush, which doesn't sound as cool, but <laughs> that's what it is. That move is so powerful and it fits so much better with like, yes, you can teach all of the spells that you want to Sabin, but it's not really going to help you that much to teach him something like Ultima. The MP cost to damage output is just like it's it's negligible like you can't even compare it but set him upright and throw a bunch of the phantom rush bum rush moves an enemy and he will just completely clean house and it's it's more fitting with his character as well like you wouldn't want Sabin like he's not going to do magic he's not going to sit there and bother learning a spell he's going to punch so it just it, it it's it's not just a, a way to make it more interactive. It's not just a way to get over the, oh, all the characters can become carbon copies of each other. It's, yeah, it, I mean, that's, that's it, the problem with eight. I just ended up, I ended up giving everyone all the spells. And so there was, they, they didn't specialize in anything. So I could switch the uh, Adelons around at will without going, like, there, there was no reason not to just get 99 blizzards and give everyone 99 blizzards. If you're not going to use them, you might as well just collect them, like trading cards. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, but I th- I think that's a the, the Sabin's a, a great example to use for that. It's like no, you don't. It's not beneficial, and it also doesn't fit his character specifically to make him a carbon copy of somebody like Terra or Celeste that do rely heavily on their magic skill set. You should be setting him up to create as much damage with his blitzes. Like, that's what he's designed for. And if you want to take the time to learn them and get really good at executing them, the benefits are huge. He does so, like, he's so good. (laughs) Have you heard of Joshua Harter? I'm not sure. Uh, Context. (laughs) He's a wrestler called Chris Sabin. That's his character name. Mm. And his specialty okay. is the okay. bum rush. Ah, I, okay. I, like, when you said the bum rush, I was like, where have I heard that before? Chris <laughs> Sabin? I mean, Ooh. that's beautiful. That is that's a total amazing. nerd right there. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> you should introduce Chris Sabin to your dog, Terra. He would love her. Oh, you would love her. They would get along great. Um, okay. But yeah, I think that's a... And, and Sabin, I think uh, he and Edgar, their dynamic with each other just works so well. It, were like, it could easily have turned into something like a, a Cecil and Kane from Final Fantasy IV with like rivals all the way up until almost the very end. But it doesn't turn out that way. Like there is... It's, it's actually quite a, a positive... A, a, an expression of positive masculinity because they're very supportive of each other and you know that no matter what, they want what's best for each other. Hmm. Next character. I was saying uh, Setzer, the uh, uh, the gambler, uh, has like a uh, one-armed bandit style move. It's like a fruit machine. It goes and you've got to kind of match up three uh, and it's... Uh, tends to give me uh, even less good results than like overall on Sabin occasionally going I don't know what you mean when you ask him to, to thrash mm. somebody oh god I can't finish this sentence with a fucking dad joke <laughs> okay fuck it let's rewind a bit do, do, do it anyway <laughs> do it anyway I didn't want to slot shame him okay <laughs> <laughs> sorry okay right why do you love Setsa so much I know why you already told me but tell the folks at home <laughs> Okay, so I mean, I mean, I just just look at him. I mean, like for anybody, they can't. It's even... not a visual medium, Maya. Look at a picture of him on Google. Google okay? him right now. <laughs> Google him right You're now. Welcome. Look at him. Anyone who <laughs> we'll even wait. knows me slightly, or at the very least has listened to our show on Hades, will know immediately that this guy is one hundred percent my type. He is a a, a gambling albino sky pirate who has a full casino in his airship and these badass facial scars and a very goth trench coat uh, he's basically yeah he's goth gambit but with Sephiroth's hair he kind of is or Alucard's uh, more fun brother yes absolutely it's his more fun gambling brother so uh, Setzer is amazing. Like just in his his aesthetic and his style, I love his character design. Um, the fact that he is the character that leads you to the airship just opens up a whole uh, the the rest of the world. Basically, it gives you so much more freedom. Yeah. So I think in 
in more ways than one, I associate Setzer's character with freedom, with exploration, and with the rest of the game kind of opening up in front of you. You have so many more options, so much more room to explore. And by end game, Setzer is a character that I have with me almost through to the the very almost all the way up to the final fights in the game. There is and and this is just a bit of like you you got to really know the mechanics of this game and you really got to know the equipment and relics, but there is a way to make Setzer's damage output like basically outscaling anybody else in in his class like oh, not the fixed dice yes the fixed dice paired with um i'm not i can't remember what it's called in your version but in the snes version it's called the offering it makes the fight command go four times oh basically. that's the scroll yeah yes it's the scroll a ninja scroll maybe <laughs> um <laughs> don't google ninja scroll folks please no 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 don't don't, don't google that just, but anyway just look what, at sets uh, even in in kingdom hearts Wow, that's a dish right there. Oof, sploosh. Anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> also, I only just found out about Final Fantasy Dissidia Omnia Opera, which oh, is... Yeah. I, I've, I've been finding out about so many frigging mobile games that Square have been making since I stopped paying any attention to mobile games or indeed Final Fantasy games being made. I'm like, I would really like to play this. But I yeah, tried playing... So many... oh, what was it called? Uh, Final... Oh, Final Fantasy Brave Exvius, yeah, which has this so amazing aesthetic <laughs> and soundtrack. And it's like this thing turned into a weekend in Vegas within minutes. Can't <laughs> oh, stand no. mobile games. Oh, it drives boy. me nuts. Yeah, it's, it's hard to kind of, it's hard to sort through the ones that are just like the, you know, gambling casino style loopbacks, uh, microtransaction On a side crap note, that we've... another reason I fucking hate mobile games, mm -hmm. there was a mobile version of Final Fantasy VI made in 2014, which had very soft looking, lovely yes, sprites, which a lot of fans of the game bitched and bitched about. They were like, they're not pixely enough, these look soft and gentle, and I don't like it. And it had lovely lighting and in a gorgeous just like production values, da, da 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 The Android version of the game, you could buy it. You could buy the iOS version that's like that. That was delisted and replaced by the Pixel remasters in 2021, 2022, and you can't buy it anymore. It is a game that literally cannot be bought, played, it doesn't exist. I refer you folks to our show on retro to my show on retro gaming and emulation, because my god, the idea of it's so ephemeral. It is so impermanent, these games yeah. we think we have. We don't have them. We, we don't have, have them. only have them for a bit, so enjoy them while you can. I now have to work out how to fucking sideload the mobile version, even though I would gladly pay Square for it right now, even as well as the Pixel version. Yeah, the, the lack of preservation for some of these things is... It's really sad. Oh, yeah. But anywho... Going back to our ninja scroll. All right. No, scroll. no, not with the ninja scroll. You're going to get that stuck in their heads. All right. The offering. I'm going to call it by its original name. The yeah, offering yeah. is a relic that turns your fight command into fight times four. Yeah. Normally what happens is because it's chopping your fight into four different pieces, it's basically like quartering your damage each time the, the fight actually executes. The fixed dice is one of the odd special weapons where that damage quartering doesn't happen. Mm. So every time you roll the dice, 
you have just as much of a chance to roll 9,999 as you do like something else. So if since it happens four times and you have uh, a chance of just rolling any number between like in the hundreds all the way up to quadruple nines, he ends up rolling over everything like a friggin' tank, and it's awesome. It's like you have broken this character to enter something approaching god mode, and it's it's fantastic. Like, you can get through so much of the game with Setzer and the fixed dice, and especially in the Coliseum, he's a great character mm. to have for that reason, because he can just dole out that damage so consistently and so uh, quickly. Can that, he get like, it done before he gets blown off the screen by that fucking killjoy thing that's like no you're not gonna fight me Whew. off you go um if you if you end up fighting that guy i think he sneezes you away before you can do anything really? but in some of the tougher battles Howard. like to get some of the really good equipment in the coliseum he will roll over those enemies before they even have a chance to do anything nice. and then it's like here you go here's your super rare um Magus Rod, or here's your super rare dragon horn. Congratulations, there you go. Like, you don't even have to do anything. You just put him in, and he goes, and it's freaking amazing. Um, Gao is another character that is, like, in a similar in a similar situation, at least in the Super Nintendo versions. In later versions, sadly, you can't do this with him, but there are amazing ways that you can, like, break his game mechanics so that the the damage output that he puts out is just it's it's insane it's almost not fair but as i say many times like i don't consider any of these things cheating because this game is friggin hard so take any advantage that you can oh, yeah. i mean like uh, bravely default which i've gotten into as a result of getting into jrpgs in general of, uh, recently okay uh, let me just back it up a second I played JRPGs when I was a teenager, because I had time. And then I met Sharon, and I found myself with a lot less time. And then uh -huh. we had Willow, and I found myself with no time. And in fact, gaming in general got put on the back burner. Now Willow's at a point where Willow wants to do what Willow does, quietly in their bedroom, or just on the uh, couch, usually involving an iPad, uh, or, or their 3DS, or the Switch and they don't necessarily need the constant attention. And similarly, Sharon has really taken a shine to, the, uh, to playing games on the Switch, which allows me time to play games. And after spending ages sort of curating this library of retro vintage games, I actually started playing them. And I embarked upon, and I'm still only in the opening stages of this, a project wherein I would play one hour and only one hour of the JRPGs I had access to and just kind of get a feel for what I like about certain games and what I don't like and just sort of find my comfort zone. I absolutely loved um, Bravely Default and I'm, I'm totally going to be going into that after I've, well, now that I've got the free time for having finished six. I totally hated another Final Fantasy game that was never released in this country, but I thought I'd actually quite like after playing a bit of Fire Emblem, Final Fantasy Tactics. And the game played itself for half an hour. And I went, well, this is... I'm not doing anything. Fine, yeah. fuck you. And I turned it off because I did not want to sit there while these dudes shuffled around making, to my mind, bad, bad tactical decisions. 
and it's, like, it's you get to hard when you're one... not actually in control. Yeah, I mean, it's like it's like a chess game where you control just a pawn, and you watch someone no. else play the game. I'm sure as it goes on later, you get to control more. But like, rather than a, a really well managed tutorial like the second version of Fire Emblem Blazing Blade on the GBA which I actually really quite liked. And as far as I can tell, Sharon confirms that uh, uh, Awakening on 3DS is very much like this tool, where they sort of work in the tutorial into a sort of a little drama playing out. And, you know, you're meeting people and they're going, I want to attack this person. And it kind of teaches you the ropes that way. In, in, in Final Fantasy Tactics, there's like a very dry menu where it's like, teach me about formations. Formations are da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. I'm like, this oh is doing everything uh. wrong. One star's across the board. Yikes. So, so yeah. Where was I? Plucking ill. Oh, yeah. But Bravely Default, and I think this actually applies across the series, you can actually work out ways of giving combinations of job systems to your characters to the point where you can just become super overpowered and kind of exploit the game like that and that is tactics you're being asked to be tactical throughout these games mm -hmm. now the developers and i remember um daniel floyd talked about this there's a path of least resistance where you just do one thing over and over again that's really boring and Devs don't really want you to do that, by and large, because it makes their game boring and repetitive. When people complain about grinding, that's really what they're doing. They're doing the path of least resistance. So I applaud any game that actually says, no, you, 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 went, you thought outside the box. There wasn't just one way of doing this. And effectively, there's a reason why the Far Cry series, as much as I fucking loathe Ubisoft on a political level and in terms of how they mm. treat their staff... I like I like the Far Cry way of approaching uh, first-person shooters relative to the uh, shooting gallery corridor of Call of Duty or the I'm about to get sniped of Battlefield. So Final Fantasy VI definitely has that as well. It allows you to kind of customize your, your fights and depending on who you've got in your team, it's not a million miles off of Pokemon as well in that regard in terms of uh, like the, mm. the setup that you have will determine your approach. And I didn't actually find myself spending way too long just killing one dinosaur. I did it one time just to learn Phoenix <laughs> re-raise so that we could I could finish the uh, tower. And that was 33 T-Rexes in a row. And that was boring. And if I had had to do that a lot more, I would have been cheesed off with the game. But I didn't. And that is commendable mm -hmm. about this game's design 28 years after it was released. Yeah, in the late game, there's a there's a a place that I prefer to like. If I'm just trying to teach spells to people, there's a specific area that I like to go to, or like there's a you can get a shield later in the oh, game the that's shield. called the, the cursed shield. That if you break the curse on it, it turns into the paladin shield, mm. which is a great piece of equipment. But what and is the curse? The curse is that it sets a bunch of horrible status ailments onto your Has character. Has it got like a little Marlboro on the back who goes, how's it going? Ah! And just breathes all over well. you. And so you're confused well. and berserk and darkness it and might sleep. as well. Because, okay, so the the one, the, the trick about this is that you put like a relic ring and a ribbon on because the ribbon nullifies ah, the status nice. ailments and the relic ring... 
uh, cancels out the zombie status, I think. It doesn't get rid of condemned, but the little counter that goes on over your head hmm. is set so high that you're gonna you're gonna you, get out of you've it. You've got before to clear dying. how many fights to, before it becomes uncursed? Oh, like over 250. Fucking it's a yikes. lot. It's a lot. But hey, my. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Back up a bit. You only get this cursed shield once you get lock back, right? Yes. Because so that's he has 200 to be or so fights after, after. Locke, who was one of yes. the last things I did in the whole game. I was missing that guy. But here's the awesome part. So if you have Locke in your party with like his sneak ring and everything else and Gogo, which is one of the hidden characters, also set up to steal, you can actually uh, use the, the cursed shield on a different character. Mm hmm and have those two try and steal as much crap as possible. On the solitary island where Celeste ends up, uh, you know, in the second part of the game, there are these enemies that basically like seizure themselves to death after a couple of moves. But if you act fast enough, you can steal elixirs and mega elixirs from them, which um, the mega elixirs get the entire party's HP and MP back to 100%. It's a really, really nice thing to have, especially um, in Kefka's tower way at the end of the game. So the fights go quickly, setting, you know, like quickly counting down that counter of how many fights you have to do. But at the same time, you could try and steal as much stuff as you can. Yeah. So it makes it a little bit more of an active um, thing to do. So I usually we do that. We keep coming back to risk reward. Like, that that seems to be in, yeah. in a lot. Again, much like Bravely Default, which predicates itself on risk reward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's another thing just as far as like the, the combat and, and going to some of the game mechanics of this. You can breeze through this game doing very simple stuff pretty easily and for those of <laughs> for those of us who are either just uh, like a I have to do this or like just want to take the time to do it like if you've got the patience for it there are some amazing rewards to be had oh, yeah. for doing things like training Gao to get a lot of good rages or training Strago to get a lot of the really good lores for his um, for his lore skill set or explain briefly you know, while we're here who Gao, Strago and the rest of the previous characters are because we're now kind of onto mechanics and things mm -hmm. Gao is um, like a little beast boy Yes. So the way Gal works is that he he has a specific area called the Velt that um, basically like as you encounter monsters and dungeons and the overworld map, the monsters will show up on this place. Um, it's completely random as to which monsters you will encounter, but you have a chance to run into pretty much every monster that has come up in a fight for you up to whatever part you are in the game. Gao has some really good options out there. Like early on, there's uh, there are things where like it, it basically like if he does his rage maneuver after having learned it from a certain monster, it basically gives him access to their special moves, which are like weird things like wind slash, which is a wind elemental uh, technique that does a ton of damage. It hits. It's it's multi-targeting. It hits everyone on the opposite team, including you know multiple enemies. It's barrier piercing. It cannot be blocked or reflected, and not many enemies absorb the wind element. So, from a tactical standpoint, it's a really great thing to have early on. And if you know the monster that can teach it to him, great. 
if you don't really spend a lot of time with Gao on the Velt to learn these uh, different monsters and, and pick up these different rages, uh, yeah, he's, he's probably going to sit on the back burner for you for you a me? lot of the game. <laughs> I, but, uh, I, I basically, like, it's because it takes a while to learn what every magic spell does. And gal has got, yeah. like, like, Imperial Soldier, Spider Monkey, Stray Cat, Boot Polish... Just mm. a, a whole bunch of word salad that I'm like, I don't, I can't, not only do I not know what this entails, because at least with Fyra, I know that that's a medium oh, yeah. fire, but fire. like, exactly. I, I don't know there's what no... elephant's ass means, and... <laughs> yeah, like, no, there's remember. no indication of, of what the actual thing is going to be, which, it, that is a, a perfectly valid point. Mm. I Again, have... remember, my, my shit brain will not oh, yeah. recall it... that kind of thing. And I have just decades of, of year, you know, like decades of time. Oh, you never done elephant's ass. So it's no, it's so the best, no, most I, powerful weapon in the game. Which, so, but that's, that's exactly my point is that like, I know that elephant's ass does this. Like, I just know off the top of my head that the martial enemy is the one that you want early on in the game to teach wind slash to Gao. Mom. Mom, I gotta teach Gao elephant's ass. You <laughs> do 9,999 damage to these enemies. And you you know, he's only gonna do that if I have him set up with certain relics. So now I gotta go to the ancient castle and get those two. Go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> Mom, where are my Cheetos? Oh, please don't even pretend that wasn't exactly you at that exact point anyway <laughs> yeah okay. but, i mean like that's that's kind of where it's like well I, because i'm a massive nerd and because i have so much time with this game like that's one of the advantages that i have yeah. is that i just know this shit off the top of my head i know like there's a bunch of crap off the top of my head where like you were playing this and i was just like alex just ugh, just go to the relic shop just go to the relic shop in Moblitz. There's a bed back there. Like, oh, it's, oh God. Why didn't and you I have to say? When I'm I suffering, to... just end. Do it, Louis. End I... his suffering. <laughs> I have to bite my tongue and just go, just let him play the game, you idiot. Like, don't no, do don't, don't let me play the game. Person. I want you to don't walk me through person. this thing. I am your, I am your, uh, uh, I'm your sensei in this scenario. The last thing you want me to do like... is to do my own thing in a game, because then I'll but just, that's... I'll hit the the moment I hit the, even the slightest amount of no, you can't do that. I'll go. Why don't you let me do that game? <laughs> <sighs> Gal, there's there's so many characters in this. You have to pick three teams of four for the big suicide run from the end of Mass Effect Two push at the end. Mm. And I still had two left over, Gogo and that. Like, I got him at the end of the game. I don't have time to make friends with an abominable snowman. Yeah. <laughs> who doesn't and honestly, like Espers. And honestly, Amaro is is one of those characters, like, they threw it in there as a, as a gag, mm. I feel like. Because... For beginning players, it's it's hard to go wrong with Imaro. You know, like he's got arguably some really good equipment to oh, start out I with, never and he him. does he does consistent damage. If you just let him go, like he'll leave a, a mark on a lot of um, on a lot of enemies. The problem is that like the game encourages customization mm. and it encourages experimentation. That's one of the things I like so much about how this is set up is you can customize the heck out of these characters. Umaro is totally one dimensional. 
You can't touch his equipment. Yeah. You can't equip espers on him, so he can't learn spells, and he can't. He has no access to these summons. Umaro's going to do what Umaro's going to do. That's it. And if you just want to send out a big abominable and have him punch the snot out of everything, he's great at that. But you can't do much else, and you don't learn especially much about him. He is entirely one-dimensional so like i usually pick him up to have like a complete end credit scene but i never use him in combat and i go go you could almost put in that category but go go has so many different options that you as a mimic yeah he's a, he'll just copy do, what someone just did they can do so many things and you can set them up to like you know when you don't have lock Getting Go-Go pretty early on uh, after you get your airship and I would argue after you get the Moogle charm on Mog, uh, you can get him and get your steel command back. And he and and they're just as good of a thief as Locke. So there you go. You have steel back in your wheelhouse and this is pretty far away from getting Locke back on your team. Plus, they can do magic. Put them with, you know, put them with some characters that have gray magic spells. They can do them just as as well as any of the other team members. Uh, Blitz works really well on GoGo. There's a lot of different things that you can you can do with them. And so, just as like a nice backup character, I like having GoGo around. What we're describing here really does sound like a modern JRPG where they are much more loose and much much more allowing of. You, know, you you can try loads of different combinations and then and mm. as you say encourage experimentation it like it really does feel like a big step forward from the note they have one job they do that and they don't even have a personality of some of the earlier final fantasy games like i i went through so many lists of ranked final fantasies and the agreed upon final place every single time was two and i was like what is so bad about two? I haven't actually played it yet, but I just it just it's unexceptional from every possible angle. And I feel like mm. one usually followed not far behind, but they always give it credit for being the first in the series. And they're called Final Fantasy because when they made the first one, Square were like, let's do one more game. We'll call it Final Fantasy, yeah? That's a, like yeah, this is this our was, last one, yeah. That was meant to be their swan song, and then it did very well. In a similar fashion. You you mentioned before when you were playing this, the the difficulty spike when you get to the floating continent that part of the game. That, oh, that, that was the one that bit that really did Okay, so this team, you mentioned that they operate like a very well-oiled machine. They were such a, a good, a, a well-working and well-oiled machine mm. that when they got to that part of the game, they realized like, we got loads of time and resources left. Let's play around with uh, rearranging the map and making a second part to this game. That wasn't planned from the beginning? The game was originally meant to... The final dungeon was meant to be the floating continent or in its original form. Oh and my. you were supposed to have your final fight with Gestal and Kefka on the floating continent. But they were so ahead of... Imagine this almost unbelievable to think about. They were so ahead of schedule that they decided we're just going to uh, split the game in two and make a totally new uh, second part of this game. You could just take a bit more time and make sure that it gets <laughs> released in the UK because past Alex in 1994 <laughs> really wants to play it. 
He's reading I'm about so it in I'm magazines. So he's, he's just touching the pictures and going, golly, that looks fun. Oh, if only. I'm, I'm sorry, Alex. <laughs> we we recognize we have the term grey import, which is where you would pay 100 English pounds for an original Street Fighter 2 cartridge on the SNES. And it wouldn't fit into your snares because it needed a special adapter. Mm. Technically, if you can get the card in there, it's fine. But they deliberately made the cartridges the wrong shape. Because oh. how dare anyone import an American version of Chrono Trigger and play it? You shall not play Chrono Trigger! Oh. Ooh. Okay, let's actually let's take like... a, a little side row before we go back to the last few characters. First of all, first of all, I'm just going to finish off Gal. Like, he's a little Tarzan guy. And you meet a crazy old man who's like, oh yeah, I remember having a boy and I, like, I, I was walking across the, uh, the veldt and then there were some monsters and I was like, you could have this disgusting, idiot, alien, savage boy. And I just threw him at these monsters and I ran away. And, I'm, and at that point, uh. if Gao's in your party, he's like, ook, ook. And you're like, could, could you like, notice who's down here? And I kept going back to this guy going, now do you recognize him? And eventually I realized you have to have Sabin in your party. Otherwise, mm-hmm. it, doesn't, it, it doesn't trigger. And Sabin basically gets Gao dressed up like a little city gent, brings him back. And then the crazy old crackpot's like, I'm glad I got rid of my child. He was a wrong'un. And uh, Gao's conclusion is... Ook, ook. I found Gao found new family that gives me dried meat all the time. Yeah, Gao, your friend, friend, and it's just it's really sweet. And there's so it many is. little moments yeah. like that in this game. The the end of that scene is Gao basically expressing how happy he is that his father is alive. Mm. Just knowing that he's still around uh, gives him joy and hope, even if he's not very good at expressing it. Um, and it and it strengthens his relationship with Sabin because Sabin kind of ends up acting like an older brother to Gao yeah. in a lot of ways, and is the the one person who seems to really take an investment in treating him like a person and making sure that he has a connection to other people. This would make for a really great 26-episode single-season anime. Mm. It really would. It's yeah. got all of that stuff. It's, it's got more characterization in it than most anime. Oh, boy. <laughs> over, that, over that period of time. I mean, you're talking stuff like the Cowboy Bebop and the... the like, not even Trigun can actually uh, match up to this. Anyway. Mm. <clears throat> So let's just briefly talk about the various ways you folks can play this. Um, if you want to play the Super Nintendo version, you can, of course, get go the Maya route, and uh, you either know how to do that already, or you're going to be facing difficulties. If, like, if you really want to try, but want to get a really good Super Nintendo that will play in a way that's designed for uh, modern TVs... Uh, Maya, have you ever heard of Analog? I have, and I mean, there is the, I don't even know if these are still widely available, but there is the SNES Mini. The officially put out by Nintendo Mini and SNES. Yes, yeah. yes, and that and that is the, the SNES version of the game, and that, it comes yeah, that preloaded. That actually was the first time it was ever released in the UK, although technically it was also mm. on the virtual console. And right. the PS1. But I mean, the, yeah, the SNES version of it. Oh, sorry. Yes, that, I have, that I have heard of right. Analog. Yeah. And also that means you get to play uh, with a, an, a, what feels like an official SNES pad. Let me just see how much uh, SNES Mini cost in America yeah. right now. Because, I mean, honestly, it's been a while since I've even looked at that stuff. They were very readily available for 
a hot second, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how much demand there is for them anymore. Well, I mean, a lot of people are, are turning them into like, like Raspberry Pi things with thousands of games on them. And uh, right. you know, I, I wouldn't know anything about that. <clears throat> anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, you can get there's. Uh, I'm just looking on American eBay right now. It's going up north of. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's talking 100 bucks here. But they do have some of the absolute okay. best Super Nintendo games. And it feels like the most legitimate way to play these. Aside from obviously on the Switch um, uh, online store, so yeah, it's going to cost you a uh, hundred bucks. But relative to how much, a, let me let's just, let's just see how much a Final Fantasy three cartridge will cost you. Oh God, I don't, <laughs> I can't even imagine. Oh no, nope, it's going up. Nope. Oh dear. Oh yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah, seventy-five bucks on average, Ugh, just for the cartridge. No, no card box, no instructions. Yikes. Yeah, just the game. Yeah, um, but yeah, no, the thing I was talking about regarding analog, uh, they've got this thing called the Super NT-SF. That is $200, but what it is is effectively a little Super Nintendo with an HDMI out that will allow you to play wirelessly, and it's not even emulation. It is just absolutely perfect playing of the original games just pushed to uh, HDMI and obviously that's for if you want to play way more than just this because that is a serious investment uh, mm. you, you folks may have heard of the analog pocket that's the really snazzy Game Boy thing that you could uh, put Game Boy cartridges color GBA ones that became like ludicrously sought after and all the pre-orders sold out just about the time the pandemic started and then everyone was just waiting for this thing to finally get sent out. So uh, that's kind of what uh, and I, I refer you back again to my uh, our show on retro emulation, uh, where that kind of fueled the interest in playing classic games again. Uh, the PS1 version of Final Fantasy three. Oh, hang on, it'd be Final Fantasy six by this point. Hold on. Yeah, now that one's going to cost you about twenty-five bucks. That's not too bad. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it'll play roughly the same as the Super Nintendo version. Uh, it, uh, in, in fact, you get some very, very dated PlayStation One cutscenes, and as, unless, <laughs> of course, your disc is scratchy, in which case you might have some difficulty playing it. And uh, I don't know, does the, do they play on the PS4? I think they play on the PS3, but not the PS4 or something, don't they? I doubt they play on the PS4. Oh, I think you can buy it on the PSN as well, and that will also count for mm -hmm. uh, the your PSP or Vita. However, I did find playing on my Vita that when you lose the sides, that little SNES square in the middle is quite small. So this is mm. another reason why I went for the GBA version. Yeah. There's also, yeah, like I said, the GBA version, I found that one emulates really well. The version I used, uh, you can get it straight raw out of the box. It is going to be made better if you can actually add the uh, patches and if you go to romhacking.com and just look up Final Fantasy 6 Advance then it will give you a variety of different patches to it to fix the color to fix the script and it, uh, as long as like you getting to know how to use these you can give yourself a really good classic time there's also the pixel remasters, some of which a lot of people are like, I don't particularly like this new interface. The font is weirdly difficult to read, again. Mm, yeah. um, but I think the, the those are probably going to be the most legit ways to get ones with uh, a lot of quality of life enhancements, like being able to speed up battles and uh, auto battle your way through. The music is fantastic as well. Mm. 
yeah, music took a big upgrade with the, the Pixel remaster. And actually, just going back a bit to the Super Nintendo version, it was... And I don't know if you watched this video on which version to play, Maya. The original SNES one had quite a few bugs that were developed in the translation from the Super Famicom Japanese version to the American version. Yeah. You mentioned Realm, who is a little girl who can yeah. draw enemies and then control them as a result. Or get the enemy to attack his mates. And then you can also get a black, a false moustache to put on, <laughs> which allows <laughs> the, the, her to directly control them. Fake moustache. It was actually the, impres the impresario of... Of the opera's mustache. Da oh, nice. Dan Dancho's mustache. I think. I think his name is Dancho or something like that. Nice. But yeah, it's actually. That's a little weird, but yeah, there you go. It's apparently his like false theatrical mustache that you have to like put on with like spirit gum or something. Mm. Maybe it's a little reference to Salvador Dali or some other artist with a particular ostentatious it probably, mustache. It probably is. That's yeah. probably the reason for it. But yeah. Um, There's a bug realms... connected with her wherein the sketch function yes. might, might break your game and corrupt mm. your save very much break the game there's a couple of um i mean this this game is notoriously full of bugs there's a couple of uh it's, it's the sketchability is definitely one of them where like man you can sketch something and it just completely destroys the entire rest of the game or yeah your your save files are just like Meh, they're gone um one of strago's uh lures that he can that he can learn uh i think it's it's the rippler effect that he can learn it what it does is it trades status effects with your enemies and honestly like i i can't i can't really think of much reason to ever use it but in certain instances it can actually uh okay so sidebar you have an engine in your party. His name is Shadow, and he has a beautiful dog named Interceptor. Mm -hmm. Interceptor is considered dog better a... than Ninja. Yes, one hundred percent. But Interceptor is considered a status effect, and Rippler, if used in a, a certain way, and if Shadow oh, is shit. in your party, we'll it can give actually Shadow to an enemy. It can actually give Interceptor to an enemy, you and you lose Interceptor. Dog? Yes, you can actually lose your dog for the rest of the game Indy because just of this showed weird. Because he heard the word dog. Oh no! <laughs> we would never want to lose. Oh Indy. my god. But yeah, but that is like, I, I mean, you think about it and you're really. like, oh, that is, that's like heartbreaking to like even think of like, I never mm. even touched that, um, that lore for Strago because I'm like, I don't want anything weird to happen like that. Like, I don't want to trade a status for Interceptor. Like, fuck that. There's uh, another bug with uh, the rats in the opera house. You heard of this one? I don't know if I know about the rats okay. in the opera house. If you go back to the opera house and go back to the rafters, once you're in the second ruined world, basically uh, the, there's a big divide point in the middle where the world gets wrecked and everyone is kind of plunged into a post-apocalypse. Most of the zones are still accessible, but the maps now changed and rent asunder and it's sadder. And uh, like there's, there's been a lot of damage. But if you do go back, you'd have no reason to. But if you do go back to the rafters, the rats can, if left alone, teleport you back to the world. But they don't teleport you back to Esper Worlds. They teleport oh. you back to the original map. And you can't finish the game. Ah, uh, that, oof. That's crazy. 
Yeah, that's not good. There are weird bugs, too, where, like, uh, if you do certain things with uh, certain characters, like, you can actually, like, go, it, like, you can lose Celeste as a character, as a playable character, and, like, it's very strange. There are weird ways that you can actually access um, General Leo, yeah. who is uh, makes a very brief appearance as a playable character, but for the most part is an NPC. His influence uh, just, is more on Terra as, uh, as she goes mm. through, and, like, the, his... He dies tragically in combat with uh, Kefka, someone he was supposed to be on the same side as, but has seen that this guy's gone way overboard. Mm -hmm. And he's supposed to be like the good version of of Kefka almost. And I I like the inclusion of him. Like there's a heavy implication just from the dialogue and their interactions that there may have been some history between Terra and General Leo, like maybe not a romantic one, but he clearly knew her before and is sad at the fact that she doesn't really remember anything about him. Like you, there's a, a melancholy that you can sense from the things that he says and, and how he treats her of like, Oh, you don't, you don't know me anymore. That really sucks. Um, and it's, it's just a, a, a nice little, a, a nice contrast to somebody like Kefka who doesn't care about anything. You can tell that uh, General Leo cares quite a bit. But there, it, one of the weird, you mentioned not, the, the crazy theories mm. is on your list. One of the weird things that you can actually access in the in the original version of the game is being able to like keep General Leo as a character, but it totally destroys the rest of the game. You basically can't finish it. Yeah. There, I mean, this might make people afraid to play the game in case their uh, their game crashes. The old, the 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 more recent ones have had a lot of these bugs ironed out, uh, yeah. and there is uh, a patch you can add to the uh, Super Nintendo one, which is the Rose Patch, revised old style edition, which updates the script, removes a lot of the bugs, not all of them, but it makes it a, a generally safer game to play, uh, and. Uh, there's ver patches where you can put the al the altered script for the Game Boy Advance version onto the Super Nintendo, or the Ted Wolsey script onto the Game Boy Advance, so you can kind of wind it back to how uh, he did his best at the time with the translation. Mm -hmm. um, however, there are another couple of crazy theories that I've got here. One of them, and this is just like, I feel like this is putting two and two together and making ten, uh, and also misjudging the intentions of the creators of the game. Uh, there is a very sad section where, uh, after the world has fallen to ruin, there's a time lapse and a lot of time goes by, and Celeste is staying on an island where apparently there were a lot of other people who, who pitched up as well. Um, and a lot of them took to despair and flung themselves off the cliffs but when Celeste does that, she washes up on the shore, and there are no other bodies around. And you have to catch fish for Sid, a uh, guy who uh, is, you know, ailing and, and sick and has been trying to keep take good care of Celeste. And you're just out there in the surf trying to, uh, trying to catch him fish. The theory goes thus, and I will cut this out if it upsets you too much. <sighs> Sid is sick because he's been eating people. Oh... There was no other food to be had, and he couldn't catch the fish, and that's why there were no oh, bodies. Boy. And so he has a horrible brain disorder, which happens when Jeez. you eat, eat people. And I'm like, 
I mean, uh, maybe, but I mean, like, you could uh, very easily also say, like, Sid has been through a lot. He was working for the Empire. He was their head scientist, basically. He was the one who figured out how to extract magic from yeah, the espers and put it for all this shit. and put it into people and also put it into machines so he was experimenting on people and the machinery he's carrying a bunch of guilt he feels terrible about how celeste specifically was treated in the empire yeah. has treated her uh, pretty much like a, a granddaughter figure she's been in a coma for about a year at the point where she wakes up and, and we get to start playing as her again and he's surrounded by a bunch of rotten fish where if you are Celeste and trying to feed them to him, they hurt him. Mm. So you could just very easily say like old age guilt, um, the freaking destruction of the known world. Yeah. And the fact that there's a bunch of rotten, uh, sickly fish around. Also could exposure just that as God easily... knows what dangerous magic. Yes, and like, that could just as easily have deteriorated his mental and physical state as um, resorting to cannibalism. Yeah, I'd, these are the fan <laughs> theories I find the most tedious because if it's a fan theory that's like, well, this was a really nice touch and uh, I'm, I'm going to believe it anyway. But if it's a th fan theory that twists and warps characters and takes them down the, the dark paths that... Cartman would go down and say, oh, yeah, 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 obviously this man is a cannibal. Then yeah, had to have resorted to I find them annoying. Yeah, here's here's actually a, a good one. This may be on your list, but uh, let's go back to my my, my good old boy Setzer. But again, second. it's just a theory. It's, uh, no, Get I'm stuffed. not. I'm not even going there. <laughs> so Setzer, when you meet him again in the world of ruin, which is the second part of the game, uh, he he comes to your party pretty early on because you realize that like. The thing you need more than anything is transportation. Yeah. So you meet up with Edgar to get the castle. You meet up with Setzer to get your new airship. The Blackjack, his original like casino airship, was destroyed after the battle on the floating continent, after the whole world gets torn asunder. So he introduces you to a new ship that belonged to what is pretty heavily implied to, to have been uh, a romantic interest, but also kind of a, a friendly rival of his, this um, this lady named Daryl. Yeah. So Daryl pilots this ship called the Falcon. And there's, again, this just beautiful scene where you're like descending into a basement and the background shows uh, like little flashbacks of their history with each other. It's like you're descending into Setzer's memories. Yeah of this the beloved direction on this person. thing is fantastic. Absolutely beautiful. And it, it, there's a depiction of like, uh, he's, you know, they're kind of racing each other. You can see their friendly rivalry. You can see them flirting with each other. And at the end of it, he says, oh, meet us up on our spot. I'll be waiting for you on our hill. It cuts to a scene where you just see him sitting there and like the sun has already gone down and she's not there. Yeah. It's absolutely heartbreaking and he kind of eventually just gets up and walks away and then after the fact finds out that Daryl's ship kind of a very Icarus kind of uh, thing going on her ship flew too close to the sun it crashed the remains of the Falcon the ship were found but her remains were never found so in essence Setzer is is taking you to uh, the only thing that he has left of his very, you know, loved and cherished friend. 
and it's as much a symbol of like resurrecting this person like this is the only thing that he he has left of her and in lieu of being able to like have a, a proper funeral and like bury her body because it was never recovered he has essentially buried the ship he's buried the falcon like in her place but now it's the only thing that you have and he's he's got to get past this grief and has to overcome those old feelings because we need this ship in order to get the rest of our friends and save the world. The theory connected to this is that it's possible because we don't know the identity or even the gender of Gogo. One of the theories is that Gogo is Daryl, that she actually survived and is like living kind of incognito as this like mystery person. Who acts actively avoids all contact with Setsa. <laughs> yeah. Now, <sighs> it's it's not, like, I don't know how and much stock really, I actually... And it's a really, really good mimic. Yeah. It, it, I don't know how much stock I actually put into oh, that theory, but that is, that is one is of the Go-Go more, well. like... Yes, they, that, that's one of the other ones. It's like, who is actually Gogo? There's tons of these, like, crazy theories about who... Who is Gogo really? Like, what is their actual identity? Oh, uh, one that uh, actually does hold water is that Shadow, this ninja who's like, I uh, swear allegiance to no one, and will just leave your ass, especially in the earlier parts of the game. He'll join in, and then he'll be like, I'm done now, and then walk off. So it's like, don't give him any stuff. He'll take it with it. But (laughs) He will. uh, And especially, like, there's a point where you can leave him behind. He tells you to wait for him, but... uh, like you have to wait till the countdown timer goes to the last second, and then he jumps aboard the uh, airship as this thing is collapsing. But it, it's quite neat to like he's got a really checkered past regarding uh, him. Uh, he was a uh, like there's a, there's a lot of flashbacks with him being a character named Clyde. Clyde, and uh, he has a, a, a buddy mm-hmm. called Barum, and they were. Uh, no, caught in a, a, a ambush-style situation, and Barum is is wounded and can't continue, and begs uh, Shadow before he's Shadow as Clyde to, uh, to to kill him straight off there, so that he won't suffer. And Shadow declines, mm. and then just yeah, runs away, leaving it. his friend to die. And I've heard several ideas attached to this. One is that Barum is in fact Kefka and that he was picked up by the Empire and experimented on, doesn't remember this uh, past he has with uh, Shadow, which is why they have absolutely no connection to each other, except that one time where Shadow stays behind, seemingly out of guilt, on the floating continent in the middle of the game, which would suggest maybe he did feel personally responsible for what Kefka's doing. I don't know. Mm. Did you catch, though, um, Clyde's last name? Uh, That's really the big important part of it. What's Clyde's last name? It's Aroni, which is also Realm's last name. Yeah, that's the other thing that uh, mm-hmm. that specifically Realm bonds with uh, Interceptor the dog very, very yep. well, and it would appear that uh, during Shadow's travels, he uh, sired uh, Realm, who then grew up with her grandfather, a crotchety old wizard named Strago. But Strago has no particular interest in going, what's under that mask there, Shadow? It feels like Shadow is a missed opportunity for a big reveal in the game. It is, but I mean, that's kind of one of those things that like, if you are, um, if you're 
kind of doing all the side missions and you're trying to get as much as you can mm. out of the um, out of the game, then you can access all of Clyde slash um, Shadow's old memories and find out that Realm and Shadow share a last name. It's like, okay, well, Shadow is Realm's dad, 100%. Like, yeah. and... and it's like I, the I uh, the recordings I, I, in Bioshock. Yeah, and it's like, oh man, I I love that part of it. It's like, damn, this is such a, a weird like, it's buried so deep in the code of the game. But if you are patient enough with with Shadow, if you stick with him long enough, you find out this huge like important piece of his past, and it's really awesome. Intercept is still better than him, though. <laughs> yes, one hundred. No, one hundred percent. Interceptor is like. Oh, it's Rome, and like is super friendly, and and just wants to st- and wants to stay with her. Like he doesn't want to go back with his master. He's like, oh, I want to stay with the kid. Also, I like oh, Realm as well. Mine. She's a feisty little girl who reminds me of Aiko Cowell from uh, Final Fantasy IX, and uh, who mm. in turn inspired, um, among other characters that inspired her, Leah from uh, Panther Song. Yeah, yeah. Realm's a little firecracker. A mm. lot of fun. Um, her sketch ability be damned at the <laughs> end of the breaking, game breaking though it may be also it's those, used yes. by speedrunners it's like a like you, you want to talk about risk reward it's like i'm going to yeah. cheese my way through the game using the sketch ability it might destroy the game mm-hmm. they flip a coin on that one yeah but i mean realm end game is just mage 100% i mean if you set her up properly her magic is just as powerful, if not more, than uh, Terra and Celeste. So it's one of those things where, like, Sketch was always terrible, but it was also meant to be replaced eventually by her magic skill set. So she more than makes up for the, the subpar combat later in the game, where she could just throw spells out with the best of them. Uh, another theory I've heard which actually does hold water is that the whole game is a theatrical play. It's a story mm. that we're watching being played out and that yeah. the opera is a play within a play, which would be why that there is such a sort of theatrical kind of curtain call at the end. And, exactly, um, yeah. I... The, the book that you are, uh, you're reading through to find out what happened mm. to everybody. I think that's a, a it's set up very much in that in that style like you're kind of it's like you've been watching a play or watching a movie the whole time and the credit scene definitely lends to that and uh, the, it would appear that maybe the one person the one character who actually knows this is the character on the front of the box in Final Fantasy 3 the American SNES version mm. Mog a little mog dude who just looks cuddly and cute and he's carries a, a spear and is one of the best characters in the game. Oh, he's awesome. Aside from just being sunny and allowing all of this horror to roll over him, he has some amazing moves. And that bracelet, which allows you to, oh my God, to be able to just be able to run from place mm-hmm. to place without invisible yeah. random battles. It was just, I breathed a sigh of relief when I finally yeah. got hold of it. When when I saw how much trouble you were having, I was like, okay, buddy, like, the one of the first things you have to do when you get the airship is go straight over to where Mog is, is and make sure you get that little 
charm bracelet that he has. It's actually, it was a, it's called the Malulu charm. The Malulu charm in your version. So that was Mog's girlfriend who uh, unfortunately oh. did not, did not survive. It was a gift from her and it allows you to circumvent the random encounters. It was like, if you do nothing else, Alex, go pick up Mog like right now, get that charm and just uh, uh, use it and abuse it to get all of the best stuff and to be able to get through some of the dungeons uh, with some ease. It would make sense if Mog himself were the playwright because he's able to then go, just to write a note in the margin, and they had no random encounters at this point. <laughs> <laughs> and I was able to walk straight through Kefka's tower. Oh, it's going to be no difficult to get problem. to the top of Kefka's tower. Actually, it's going to be super easy, barely an inconvenience. Oh, really? Oh, the, yeah, uh... you see, Mog's just going to equip a bracelet that his dead <laughs> girlfriend gave to him and just kind of stroll right through there and, em and empty out all of the chests. Like, you referred to these as Mog Raids, which uh, allowed us mm -hmm. to uh, get hold of all kinds of goodies way earlier in the game than it would be uh, 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 accessible to have. And so it's we did that and the uh, um, Cultist Tower, mm -hmm. uh, Fanatic's Tower in various versions, yeah. uh, in fairly short order. And I was like, why, why don't I go all the way to the top? And you're like, trust me, don't. <laughs> Yeah, just leave that alone for now, yeah, and there's yes, this very but... specific reason why, I mean, and it's I because used, of that. I barely used the thing that I got from that day. <laughs> I spent oh, really? so long oh, trying man, to get that I... thing. I thought it was a, a key load-bearing item. I thought I couldn't I... do the uh, the final section without it. Oh, no, no, no. It's just that it turns a Terra especially because you can combine it with her morph special skill. Mm -hmm. She could just sling those Ultima spells around like an absolute monster. Oh, it's if we great. ever meet up, you need to just sort of show me your your loadout for these characters at some point. I, I will. I actually, um, I didn't get quite to the completion because breaking the stupid shield curse uh, took so long. Yeah. But I'll show you where my um, my characters end up at the end of the game and just see all of the havoc that they wreak on everything, especially um, especially Gao. Gao, like especially at the end of the game, is just like. Uh, he's insane. And the last point I want to talk about is if we go all the way back to when uh, uh, we were talking about Kefka, his decision, now that he's wrecked the world, is he sees people rebuilding and laughs about it and goes, what's the point? What is the point of rebuilding? It's very similar to Thanos, although Thanos didn't expect people to be... Well, uh, although Kefka didn't expect to be, people to be grateful when he trashed the world... Mm. Uh, but Thanos, when he realizes that people are not grateful for his masterstroke, because uh, it was a fucking stupid idea, uh, decides, I'm going to remake the entire universe and I'm going to make people who will be grateful because he's uh, incredibly vain. He, won't, he pretends he's not, but he actually is. It's all got to be about him. But whereas Kefka, like I said, it's, it feels like a cry for help. He's asking them, what is the point of all this? Tell me why you live. And there is a wonderful moment that just really got to me where everyone in your three parties lines up and steps forward one at a time and tells Kefka their reason to live. And I'm not going to say what they are. That is one thing that it is worth playing through the game just to sit and watch uh, for yourself because it's, it's gaming magic because it is contending a dangerous philosophy that has gained more and more traction thanks to the internet and all these fucking clown avatars who would mm. worship Kefka nowadays and, and be like, Kefka was right, there's no point living! 
and mm -hmm. it goes up against it with simple, straightforward personal connections and reasons to live for the moment rather than fear the future at all times. Yeah. There's also a nice little end You see this in the end credits, but also in Tara's story and the world of ruin in the second part, she is kind of taking care of this village of abandoned children, basically. Yeah. Uh, all these orphans that have either their parents have either died or just left them. And there are these two like older kids, like teenage characters named Dwayne and Katherine that are expecting a child. And I mean, there's no clearer answer to this question of like, what are you living for? And their child and the the ability for new life to continue. That's what it is like that. Really, the conclusion is like we're living on because new life can exist and there is meaning in in uh, nourishing this and cherishing it and carrying on for not just our children but for all of the generations that are to come picking up after desolation mm -hmm. it's it made this f game feel really relevant yeah that's and... one of the things that i have always loved about it is like there are a lot of universal themes you know like the you know some of them are a little bit tropey like the evil empire and the the rebels that are are trying to you know take them over and put the world back to right this destructive villain that completely upends the world although you know kind of like a precursor to thanos it's like he he wins he succeeds at this which you don't see very often in these types of games in this in this like time period in this era but he wins and the good guys lose and like you have to grapple with that in real time and go oh my god we lost now what do we do but the conclusion really is like what are you living for like what is there to to hope for what is there to live on for it's all of these it's all of these small day-to-day -day things it's the the little moments it's the small connections that we have in our day-to-day -day lives and it's the the belief and holding on to that optimism that life is going to continue long after you're gone and the world should be preserved and needs to be preserved for the generations that come after you i can't top that <laughs> There was another thing in the opera scene that like kind of blew my mind a little bit mm -hmm. and it, it's a parallel with a more modern jrpg um in the opera scene the the rival prince to uh celeste's character maria this guy named prince ralse and uh, he is essentially like he basically has a lost kingdom at that point not much to look forward to his side is losing and then all of a sudden because Draco gets defeated um, they're able to get the upper hand in the war and he is able to kind of 
swallow up all of those resources, absorb all of the people from this fallen empire in the West, and take them all under his wing, up to including Maria. All of that is now his, and he's this kind of rising power again. And it made me think, like, hey, wait a minute. What other RPG that I know of that is heavily influenced by this very game also has a character named Prince Ralse, who is lonely and has kind of a lost kingdom and everything uh, about his world is empty and alone and he's got nothing to live for. And then a very key character comes along and suddenly he's able to like take over these other lands and collect all of these people for himself and like rebuild his kingdom and become like this rising power in this like alternate reality it's delta rune whoa the the follow-up to undertale has a prince ralse who basically does exactly this like i didn't quite click onto this because uh, so Maya, the last... are you saying willow as well as sharon needs to play final fantasy 6 absolutely they might but, listen to now... you now, this is, and again, this is like my own little, like, headcanon, this own theory. Like, I, it just occurred to me this last time because um, when I last replayed Final Fantasy VI, Chapter 1 of Deltarune had just come out. Chapter 2 builds up on Prince Ralse's, um character a little bit more, and it, it's like, oh, you start you start questioning him a little bit. Like, ah, is he really the, the cute, nice little fluffy boy that we've all come to know and love? Or is there something more dark and sinister going on and normally i would say whatever it's just a coincidence but this is toby fox we're yeah, talking about there aren't many and coincidences with the fox I, no and the fact that he pulled so much influence from games like this like earthbound like chrono trigger and has a shot for shot remake of the opera scene in undertale i have a hard time believing that it is a coincidence but making that connection just freaking blew my mind um that's the final thing that I will say about it, because ultimately, if you haven't played this game before, there's there's a lot to it. There's a, I think there's a lot of positive things to take away from it. It is a very difficult game, but... I would say it's think not it's, that difficult relative to... I mean, I had but, a lot of help. <laughs> just well just gearing it. up for the final yeah. push took me a day, just making sure that everyone had the yeah. right gear. It's, it's tough, but yeah, I think definitely worth a, a playthrough. But I mean, that gives me hope for the future. Before. If this is tough, then I can probably get through other JRPGs. Mm-hmm. I just 100%. like uh, shorter ones. Recommend mm. shorter ones. 20 <laughs> hours is a dream. 30, I can do. 40, uh-huh. 56, <laughs> 78. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's getting tough. So anyway, uh... We will be back talking about Final Fantasy VII real soon. At that point, we will have Sharon. Thank you so hey. much to my guest for this week. Uh, would you like to oh. plug something that you have been doing recently? Well, let's see. Um, you can check out Season 4 of Doom Patrol. Uh, the first block of that, I think it's being split up into two halves, but the first half of Season 4 is available on HBO Max. Be on the lookout for a show called Average Joe, which... 
is kind of like the show Barry in its tone. So like if you enjoyed Barry and sort of the dark satirical comedy that was in that, Average Joe is kind of striking for a similar tone. Uh, and I was one of the doubles. And actually my husband was the assistant stunt coordinator for that show as well. A lot of our friends worked on it. So be on the lookout for Average Joe coming out probably in the next few months. I love the uh, the fact that Doom Patrol has persisted. It's been one of the shows that you have praised and noted mm. that you enjoyed doing it so often on the Discord. Loved working on that show. And by extension, a lot of the same crew that was from Doom Patrol, like it's 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 a series wrapped at this point. So they're stopping it with season four. But a lot of that crew ended up working on Average Joe. So nice. you saw a lot of familiar faces. So it was nice to kind of reconnect with some of the some of the folks on the on the cast stand crew over there okay folks uh we will be back i will let you know my that my findings on this jrpg quest in the meantime i've been alex show i've been maya cerise and school's, school's out, out. The School of Everything Else is funded by Patreon. Thank you so much to everyone who keeps supporting us. It is down to you that School of Movies abides. And if you're in the top tier, then you get credit every episode. So thank you to Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alejandra Vargas, Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolf, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clausen, Joe Gluck, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Polmeyer, Matthew A. Siebert, Michael Hasco, Sean Doran, Toby Skills Jungius, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Tom Painter, Timu Hellas Hayo, Sarah Montgomery, and Kat Esman. That was a worthy amount of time and depth and fun and detail. That's going to be, it's two hours and, and, and two and a half. I don't need to cut <laughs> anything about. out. I like how that went. And honestly, like, uh, I kind of, I remember saying this at the end of the Kane and Rince episode that I did with those guys, but mm -hmm. like, it makes me so happy to know that like people can come back to this game after almost 30 years mm -hmm. and still get something out of it and still oh, yeah. enjoy it and have fun with it. Like, being that it's one of my top games of all time, it makes me so happy to see other people have a good time with it and and get um, you know get something out of it. So I was like, yay, Alex is actually enjoying it this time. That's awesome. Honestly, one of the main reasons why I was actually able to fucking finish it was save scumming the hell out of that last boss. I think yeah. I got to my 31st save. <laughs> 
save oh state. Oh my god! Just wow. like because I didn't want to Yikes. make just one and then have to go back to that because he was like he, there were so many times when I was up and I got everyone cured back again and then he struck mm -hmm. me down like to almost <sighs> nothing again. And Kefka's a bastard in that last yeah. battle. Oh my god, he's. Christ. And I, I thought that as soon as one person dies, then someone else jumps in from the rest. That's not how it works at all. It only happens what, like twice when you go to his next form. Yeah, if you if you defeat them and like you have a, a person down, it it carries over to like the mm. next tier. But if all of the party wipe, no one else turns up. It just goes <laughs> nah, game over. And you're like, oh fuck! This oh, is even gosh. harder than I thought. And, I but know. Yeah, yeah, it was it was a really long, hard scrabble fight. I was like, right, I've only got this many echo screens left, this many mm -hmm. eye drops left. I was going to my, uh, I was like rifling through my potions bag and going, what have I got? What have I got? Okay, a mega elixir. I've got to save yeah. that until I really, really need it. Why didn't I buy more ethers? Like power ethers. Yeah. yeah, and it's and it's uh, yeah. That's kind of why, like, before I go into that battle, I tend to stock up and get Locke and Gogo to just steal as much of that stuff as you can, because the Mega Elixirs against Kefka is a godsend. Like being able to get everyone back to hundred percent. One Mega Elixir. Yeah, and that's the thing is like you get you get one from like a boss drop or a chest. Yeah, would have been that. One. Unless you go back and like try to steal them from the little uh, hermit crabs in the desert. Hmm. There is no way Maya would let us leave without playing you. The final boss suite, which is Nobuo Oimatsu at his most insane. This is his rock group, the Black Mages, playing for you only the first half of Dancing Mad. 